we, we look up to you, man. And we're just so appreciative of the work that you've done and the, and the passion and the dedication and the patience you have for the art form. And uh, we definitely, you know, see you as like an international global treasure. So just thank you for all your hard work and, and for everything that you've done for gaming and beyond, right? Uh, thank you, so, thank you. Yeah. Thank yeah. you very much for that. I really, really appreciate those words. So maybe you so, can start off by telling us a little bit about, yeah, about the information before. Um, so, I mean, yeah, we all come from a place of just playing, you know, however you came to know of, of fighting games, whether it was a couple of friends inviting you to their place for the weekend to play Street Fighter on the couch together, or whether you went to a, a venue, you know, like an arcade in a, in a minicab place or a, or a chip shop or a burger bar, you know, like a bingo hall, whatever, right? There were arcades literally just everywhere, you know, seaside resorts, hotels, the arcades were there. Um, and yeah, then began this solo journey. I think for everyone in the beginning, it's just a solo journey. You embark upon X fighting game, probably Street Fighter if it's back in the 90s. And then you realize, oh, other, other people play this too. You know, this is popular in this area and that area. And then you sort of will learn a bit more about how big it is. And I think that was one of the biggest surprises that it was just so massive. But almost overnight, it just seemed to sweep the nation and everyone wanted to play Street Fighter. And it was in every nook and cranny and corner of, of every area of the country. And it was just like, wow, this is really big. Because Street Fighter 1 didn't have the same prominence, didn't have that same, you know, atmosphere around it, didn't have that same aura, you know. But Street Fighter 2, when, when, it, when it became this, this, when the hunger grew for competition, for one-on-one -on -one competition, you know, we were no longer trying to beat each other's high score. We wanted to beat each other. And when that became the basic notion, then I think it just blew up. You know, that's when it really just blew up. And then, of course, now becomes, now comes the, 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 uh, the, the, the learning, you know, the, now comes the, the search, the hunt for, for information. You know, how can I, how can I win? You know, what, what, what do I need to do to win? How do I use this character? What's the best way to do this move, you know? Um, and there were no guides. I mean, if you, if, you know, if you just try and picture for a moment, if we lived in a world where there is no YouTube, there is no Discord, there isn't even internet. Think about that for a second, no internet. All the things that you're doing for most of your day these days require some form of internet whether it's on your tablet, whether it's on your laptop, whether it's on your PC, whether it's on your phone, you need network. You need, people get angry when they don't have connection. It's like their life is over just because they can't get online. You see, everything is enveloped around what you can do on the internet today. Even shopping, people can't even get their groceries without going online, some people, you know? So it just shows how much of a basic necessity the internet has become over the years. But back in that time, for us striving, uh, you know, young ankle-biting uh, fighting game fans we didn't have any of that so we had to learn through each other um, basic inquisitive you know um, mindset getting you to travel to other areas and sort of see what they had to offer um, and yeah being very good at, at tracking what you would picked up you know if you saw a new strategy or if you saw a new um, style you know you, you would sort of make notes oh, okay so he was doing this in the corner or he was you know, he was pressuring with that tool or, you know, he counted with this and, and you caught kind of just made your own little personal directory of content for, for each, you know, thing that you wanted to know. And um, not a lot of people took it that seriously back then. 
Um, I, I certainly didn't for a long while, not until tournaments became a thing in 94. Um, and in 94, the first tournament, I'm not sure if this is the first ever fighting game tournament. It may well be. I think there are probably a couple of others uh, in uh, in and around the country, maybe 92 and so on. But anyway, so for Super Street Fighter 2 Turbo, my very first tournament was in 1994, and it was held in the London Trocadero, um, one of the biggest venues in uh, central London, really massive monuments. People used to visit the sightseers and so on. And um, yeah, a guy came to our local arcade. Uh, I lived in Croydon at the time, so very, very south. And uh, he came down very smartly dressed in a suit and tie, and he said, hey, um, we're holding a tournament in central London. Do you want to be a part of the tournament? And we were like, huh, tournament? You have to imagine that we had never heard of this. What do you mean a tournament? We just play it, dude. Like, we don't know what you're talking about, you know? And uh, he was like, yeah, we're going to do a tournament. We're going to do two tournaments, actually. We're going to do a 5v5, which you're welcome to be a part of. And we're going to do a, a singles tournament, solo. So and he's like, yeah, I'll be back in a few days. Um, so decide who you want to uh, send for the team tournament and have a few of your guys coming out for the solo. And, he, and, he, and we thought we'd never see him again. This dude came back three days later with about 50... Uh, to 80 t-shirts with our area printed on it and the name of the arcade, the Surrey Street Market Arcade and the area, Croydon. And uh, as far as I remember, I can't remember if that's the exact print, but they were definitely uh, printed t-shirts they'd had made. And, and yeah, and, and he said, yeah, like, you know, put these on, you know, when you go put these on, it's on this day, come down. And we were just like flabbergasted. We were like, what, this is actually a thing? Like, what? Um, and you have to bear in mind, back in that time, every area, you know, every borough had its own community. You know, it wasn't like uh, the later stages where everyone went to central London as a local meeting point where we could get together. Every area had 50, 100, maybe 200 players, every area of the, of the city, you know. So it was by and large the biggest growing thing among young people at that time you know and um it's kind of like you don't see it today because everybody's in their houses everyone's behind closed doors you don't see that collection that amass in one area and so you're not really able to appreciate just how many people are involved in this thing but back then it was like wow everyone's here i don't know these people they're all doing what i'm doing playing street fighter they love the game too like like i do and um that was kind of cool, you know. I think the FTC uh, kind of dwindled. Uh, the UK FTC scene dwindled once it went to console and and, and online and everything because there was such a divide, right? But yeah, so back in this time, so we went to this tournament. <laughs> we actually did go, and we got, we got absolutely destroyed. I think you know, just for framing, I wasn't the best back then. I wasn't even close to or anything, nothing like that. I was very very average. I was good. I was good. I was, but I was average. If you look at the entire scene that we had in Croydon. Uh, and in and in Battersea where I played before that, I, I was I was good, but I there were some guys I could be all the time, and there were some guys I just just untouchable. I couldn't even get a look in. Um, so when we were on the way to this tournament, I was so determined to do my best. I'm gonna, you know, maybe I could win this thing. I was trying to hype myself up, right? Um, but I was pretty sure that even if I didn't win, because I was a realist as well, like you know, well there are guys I can't be here. So what about this thing? I was thinking, even if I don't win, I'm sure our top guys, one of them will take it. And I was so hyped up about celebrating on the way back when one of them's got the trophy and we were just laughing and joking. But we all got absolutely obliterated, like <laughs> every single one of us. It was just the funniest experience because 
if you compare the train journey there and the train journey back, it was just like, there's an abyss of difference in between the two parallels. We were so like little kids on the way to the fun fair on the way there, you know, just so excited and just in our own world of being the best and just all this fabrication about how we're going to celebrate when we win. And then when we lost right. on the way back, like no one talking to each other, one person looking out the window, another person reading a book, another person just like looking for coffee on the, on the, uh, the train, little like cafeteria thing. <laughs> it was just so, we were just so divided. And what that was is it was the extraction of our defeat. You know, we needed to get that energy out. We were so broken from the loss. You know, we were very passionate. Um, and this is in 1994, you know, so in terms of, you know, competitive drive and energy, that existed way, way ago, way long ago, you know. But yeah, I, I was in the middle, you know, I didn't, I wasn't that upset because I knew like, like even in my own area, I'm not even, you know, so what am I, do you know what I mean? I kind of had a very realistic um, outlook there. But yeah, so what then happened was um, half of our community decided, you know what, I didn't know that it was that hardcore. I'm only playing this for fun. I think I'm going to you know, I'm going to, I'm going to call it a day here. And, and they left, you know, a lot of the guys, they, after that tournament, they, it was too much for them. They left the community. They stopped coming to the arcade. We didn't see them anymore. It was quite sad, you know, it kind of divided us in half. And then of course, you know, uh, I was on the other side of the fence where it was the complete opposite. You know, I was in the half of the guys that were just completely inspired and we were just so blown away and like, wow, this is fantastic. This is incredible. Like, it's even better than I thought it was, you know, and we just wanted more and we wanted to learn. How can we get that good? Oh my God, I didn't know it was that deep. You can do this there. I didn't know that. What? That's incredible. You can combo into supers. Wow, this is mind blowing. So all of that, you know, was happening. And um, um, yeah, so that, that's how that happened. Then, did you know? Uh, oh yeah, go did, ahead, you go ahead. know did you know even back then that you wanted to, pursue a career in gaming or was that no. still like not even on the table no as like no, a concept that, that wasn't that wasn't on the table that wasn't even in the house at that point i i just didn't even I, there wasn't a concept of pursuing it forever because that that infrastructure didn't exist there wasn't right. a, a person to look after you know there wasn't a person to aspire towards you know aspire to be like they, they, it, it was just something that we did as a recreation activity after school and on weekends and so on. And it, it didn't exist in any other part of my mind except for there. And that's all it ever was. It was a coming together of friends to share something fun. Like, you know, someone gets a deck of cards out, you're not planning to be the next ball, uh, the next, you know, David Copperfield or whatever, right? You're just doing a, sharing a few card tricks or card games with friends. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it wasn't anything more complicated than getting around the table and having a game of Uno with five friends literally so i feel like um you know once it got to be competitive because uh, that was just the first tournament so at the time we thought it was a one-off we thought okay that's done back to real life you know we just thought it was over but then the next year so that was in 94 that was december 1994 the next year um i i had simultaneously gotten into king of fighters as well started with King of Fighters 94, which attracted me because the moveset was very similar to Street Fighter. Fireball input, Dragon input, you know, Somersault kick input, you know, they were, they were very similar inputs. Um, so I, I got into that. And then by the time King of Fighters 95 was released, I was pretty, pretty good. So when they announced the national tournament, I was like, right, I'm going to go here. I'm going to do some damage. You know, I got battered at the Super Turbo one last year, but that's all in the past now. It's my time to shine. Let's do it. And I went down, I got destroyed. <laughs> Completely battered. And um, th th there was one little claim to fame that I had in that tournament where 
um, I managed to, it was a complete upset. It was an absolute complete upset, but I managed to beat the guy who apparently would have won. I didn't know who he was. Um, and they said, yeah, if you hadn't have, so the tournament, that particular tournament was like a winner stays on tournament. They had like 10, five, I think they had five or 10 cabinets in a row. And, you know, you had like a hundred people in a, in a queue. And then when you're, when your number scored, you sit down and you play and, and then if you win, you stay on. And the, the tournament is time uh, limit based. So when the 10 hours are up, whoever's got the most wins, wins the tournament. Whoever's got the second most, second place and so on. And that's how the tournaments were run there. So it was pretty interesting because you would definitely get a lot of opportunities to play against the guy or to play again. You know, if you lost once, it wasn't like now where you lose once, twice, you're out. You would get a, yeah. you'd get a third try, you'd get a fourth try. And depending on what happened uh, amongst the other players, you could always be in with a shot at winning if you were good enough. You know, you would always have a chance to come back. So, yeah, um, I apparently upset the guy that would have won it and then some other guy won. Um, and that was the only good thing that happened. Apart from that, it was all downhill. Um, but it was a sign. It was like a little shining light, you know, like, oh, this guy, you know, because people started to actually voice that. Like, wow, that, you know, he, he didn't win, but that, that one match with that guy with the red jacket, he was good and 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 some you know some chatter started circulating and that is was it the possible? first oh yeah go ahead, go ahead yeah is it possible that you could like briefly describe the feeling of what it felt like to be in those arcades in the uk because i'm 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 imagining like do you still get that feeling today i mean do you still have those flashbacks where you get that same sort of excitement and curiosity is it different has it changed that feeling i mean Maybe you don't see it as as anything special, but to me, it sounds like I'm I'm picturing, I'm like imagining mm. what you're telling me. So I'm trying to figure out, like, have you been able to get go back to that moment and that feeling? There's nothing like it. I've got to be honest. There, there is nothing like the. I used to get goosebumps just approaching the like. I'm not even at the arcade, but just like on the way, not not on the way, but like you know, hundred yards from the door where you're already starting to, you know, you just start tingling inside, like you just know, like, man, it's about to be on, you know, and that, that, that energy, nothing online presents that. No tournament, no, you know, ranking, whatever. It's just a different thing, complete. This, you know, being there, even going to a tournament and being at the venue, it's not the same. Because I was thinking it's about the in-person uh, factor, but it's not. There's something about going to a place with unknown, like so many unknown variables and outcomes. You don't know, like the, the excitement about going to the arcade is like, you don't know who's there. You, mm. Like on a day where you know it's packed, like a Friday night, you've just finished work. You've been thinking about this all day. You know what you want to try. You've got your tactics ready to go. And, and, and it's competitive, you know, it has to be competitive. It can't be that you wipe the floor with everyone and it can't be that you don't get a look in. It has to be competitive. If I don't play my A game, I'm going to get stomped. But if I'm ready, I could take these guys. Like, it has to be sort of that kind of, you know, there, there needs to be that chemistry between you and the other guys you're going to meet. Um, and, and, and the thing is, I'll be heading into the doors of the arcade and just anticipating, you know, what's going to be, what's going to happen, you know, what, who's going to be here tonight? Who's winning right now? Who's on a hot streak? Who, who, who do I need to take off, you know? Is there a guest? 
do we have a guest here? Sometimes we'd have random guests from Japan just in town for the weekend because they're sightseeing or someone from America or someone from a different part of the UK. Like anything could happen at any time in the UK because it was in the central, you know, it was in the hub of the city. If you travel to London, you're going to be in, in the center and all the best arcades are in the center. So that kind of, you can't recreate that with, you know, uh, what we have today. It's not the same. You, you know, it, so much, so much magic goes from even just needing to bring your own controller, for example. You're already now thinking, do I have to pack this? I have to plan this? Do my buttons work? Do, you, you're now already doing maintenance, you know? Um, so that, there's that. Then there's the element of now I need to ring my friends. Hey, are you going down? And then, there was that before, but this anonymous factor was cool when you didn't quite have that network yet. You were just one of the guys in the fray. You know, there you didn't know everything. Either, right? I mean, you could yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, true, true, true. Yeah, you're right. In the early days of arcade gaming, we didn't have phone numbers. You know, it was, I mean, yeah, you had a house phone maybe, but no one, you know, it wasn't the same, right? You couldn't be on the move and contact people. So it was just like, I'm just going to go to the arcade today on the off chance that people are down. And if people are down, then we're going to get some games in, you know? And there was a lot of anticipation because quite often you'd lost the last time you were down. You would either lost to someone, you know, relatively badly, or you had beaten someone badly. So there was always that question of, if is X person going to be here tonight? You know, and you didn't know this person. You didn't know if you'd played them at their best, worst, had you seen everything? You had no idea. So the fact that you just, just the fact you knew they were good was enough to get you excited. And this could be the case. You could have growing rivalries and storylines with 20 separate players that all don't know each other. They're just people that exist in that arcade space. And that is very, very exhilarating. You know, that's even better than like a tournament because it's just so much hype, you know? A tournament has anonymous people that you might face. It might have people that you know that you might face, but tournaments in general are quite cold, aren't they? You know, you might talk in the downtime, you might have a meal afterwards or you meet in the cafeteria or whatever in the break, but the actual game interaction is quite, it's quite brief. You know, what, what happens right. today? Okay, you get called onto a stream match, you play a best of three, you shake hands and then it's a wrap. There's right. no there's no longevity to it. There's no thought out process of, right, he's hitting me with this and now I'm going to adapt and do that. And then he gets to adapt and then you adapt back. And that is what the, that's where you grow as a player. You don't really do a lot of growing in best of three in the two, in the two out of three set. You don't. You do the most of your growing in the preparation for that. But... The arcade kind of combined the two in a really unique way. Like you were training, but it was also very, very serious as if you were in a tournament. Right. You know, tournaments, mm -hmm. playing in tournaments back then was so easy to play in because you were, <laughs> you were fighting for your life every day. It wasn't the tour, you know, when someone said, right, now there's officials watching, it didn't change too much for arcade players because you were always playing in, in front of people. That's one element. You weren't playing behind closed doors like now on online. You were always playing for a public audience. That's a massive factor to deal with stage fright. A lot of players that played back in the day don't suffer from straight stage fright because they were used to playing in a public in front of a public audience. And believe you me, it was very embarrassing if you lost in front in yeah. front of everybody. Yeah, because you know fighting games. I mean, this is this is a language, isn't it? Just like dance is a language, just like, you know, th these are people talking to each other through the software, through the pixels, through the characters on the game. So when you speak that language, you understand what's being talked about. 
And some of these conversations are very, very aggressive, very one-sided with one person being extremely outspoken and literally upstaging the opponent. So everything displayed on the game was very, very visual. You know, that's the thing with fighting games. You, you don't get it, then suddenly you get it and everything opens up and you're like, oh my God. So that means that, the, and all of a sudden you're, you're fluent in this, in this vernacular. Do you see what I mean? And, and this is the difference between just entering an online thing and being a part of an actual, you know, bustling community of rivalries. You know, one, one thing that strengthens you is when you have reason to be good. You have incentive right. to be good. Money is one incentive, but it's not the best incentive because money is, you know, a huge, the, the money, the necessity of money has so many levels of, of, of you know, um, of, of need. You might be rich, but just be playing for fun. You know, you, you might still want the money, but you don't need the money. And you might need the money, but you might not need the money as much as someone else needs the money. So using money as the driving force will mean that people's commitment is going to have fluctuation. Not everyone's going to be fighting, even though you're all fighting for the same cause, the degree of need is different. So the amount that you put in is going to also be different as well. Whereas when it's a rivalry, rivalry means the same to everybody. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you're from, who you are. Rivalry is rivalry. So when you had a guy and you needed to beat that guy, that level of need to a degree transcended any other kind of wish, need, want, whatever. Like, I, I'm, I'm going to beat this guy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, that was the thing. So... Today, when we fight for representing our pro team or when we fight for the prize pool, you know, what's the prize pool saying? Oh, we've got a donation from this guy. Okay, cool. Yeah, that. Or Capcom Pro Tour. You know, when, when we fight for these prizes now, it doesn't create the same kind of energy as back in the day when you were fighting to kind of prove yourself to yourself in some cases. You were fighting to prove mm. yourself to your audience. You were fighting to prove yourself to yourself. And you wanted to prove yourself to your opponent. I am better than you. I can beat you. I'm going to show you what's up. So also, um, you know, humans by nature, we're, we're very cunning creatures, aren't we? You know, this is how we know how to hunt. This is how we know how to outsmart an opponent. This is how, you know, we, we, able to, we were able to strategize to go to war, to do battle. You know, this is part of who we are. This is part of our raw um, design, you see? So when you have a reason to win outside of, you know, that's really like deep, like, like a proper rivalry or something, yeah? It allows you to draw from that part of you, that energy, that natural source of learning how to survive. The survival instincts kick in, you know? And that affects how you practice, that affects how the, the, the fruits that come from that, from that labor, you know, that, that hard work that's done. So yeah, uh, drifting a little bit, but yeah, that, that is a definite important element of why the, the, the arcade scene times was a lot more potent than now playing online. Right. And you also talked about how, you know, you didn't have the internet, so you had to learn mm. at the arcade. You had to learn by playing other people. And it seems like your play style or at least your approach back then was very intuitive. You were like learning as you go and kind of using common sense and learning how people think in order to, to beat the other person. How much mm. of that philosophy and play style is still intact today like how much even when you play 
you know, on the world stage today or you play at a mm-hmm. tournament today, do you still lean on that intuitiveness or is there a lot more because you have that experience, a lot more like technical, uh, mm-hmm. you know, sort of book, book work that goes into being a great player? Um, first off, I think that when I, so what happened is I went to this, uh, this tournament where, I went to this tournament where they, um, you know, had like all these top players, right? You know, so I went from, like I told you, I went from 94, the Super Terror Tournament, went from my area to, the super, to Central London, where all these amazing players played. And we saw things we'd never seen before, you know, just different strategies, different techniques, different ways to hold the stick even. You know, we saw people doing combos into supers. We'd never seen that before. What, you can combo into the super? That all links, you can't block, like what? We were just completely mind blown. And this set me on a course that changed my life forever. And I didn't realize at the time, you know, this, like you, like I said before, this wasn't a, a career I was pursuing uh, or anything like that. But when I saw that people who had been playing the same game I've been playing on the same soil in the same city as I have been in, were able to create such a different world of skills this is something we had never seen before. We were like, I didn't even know this was possible. But these are just people that live, you know, in the same place I live in. How comes this was able to exist without us realizing, you know? And then we just realized how small of a bubble we lived in, you know, in our community. We just had our 50 guys and we were cool like that. Yeah, okay, this is what the game's about. We didn't know. We had no idea. And that um, became a very, that piqued my interest, you know. So what else is out there? You know, I want to take it further. Are these guys actually the best? Or are they, are they just the best that we've seen? What if there's more? How much more? How, you know, how deep does this rabbit hole go? And I was along for the ride. I wanted, to, I wanted it all. So mm-hmm. what happened is, um, but this wasn't in a plan in motion. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't that intuitive with it. It's just like, I, I realized that, wow, okay, this, so there might be more. Okay, fine. Then later on in the King, King of Fires days, um, I had the opportunity to uh, travel. Uh, started off with winning a, a tournament for a game called Air Guys that got me a trip to Japan in 98. And then I went to Japan and uh, learned that they have all these like frame data guides and, and combo DVDs. And, and they had basically started the earliest forums, the earliest YouTube, you know, where you had combos visualized for you with inputs where you could see how things were done. That, I, that wasn't a thing, but they had DVDs attached to little booklets you could buy in any bookshop. Any high street bookshop had these game frame data books with every frame for every character, learn how to react when a move is blocked, hit, crouching hit, counter hit, whatever, you know, what juggles you could do, everything laid out for you in a book. And um, this, is a, this is something that was a new world for me as well, that Japan had all this resource. So they had kind of started their uh, thread of, of content. You know, they'd had like the first set of, um, rule books for how to play games. Um, and then America had some, I know, you know, Prima games or like Brady games. I know America had their own ones as well. Um, or sometimes EGM will do like a special where they'll teach you, you know, things for Street Fighter and stuff. Or like they had like a first double page spread tier list of every single matchup on Super Turbo. You know, that was really impactful. Like, wow, this is, I've never seen this before. Okay, so Honda beats Cami. Wow, that, you know, and we were just, my, we were just our eyes were, were opened. Um, but yeah. My, uh, I think one of the elements that I started realizing is quite impactful is when I played in Japan, some of the things that I knew from the UK were really effective. 
you know and by the time I went to Japan for the first time I was already well known in Japan I had had there had been a few Japanese um, students and you know exchange students and people that had come to the UK that had played me and then gone back to Japan and talked about me so by the time I went to Japan there were a lot of publications that wanted to interview me which was very very flattering especially as my life in the UK wasn't in a, in a great state at all um, and yeah, and you know, and, and it was very, very touching that they wanted to to talk to me and know more about me and stuff. And it was the first time they'd ever had like a foreign champion come over, sort of thing. This is in '98. Uh, I think, especially someone that wasn't Asian, you know, um, they they were like, oh, we want to talk to this guy. Um, and um, I remember the Friday, the first Friday night, going to the arcade, and I don't know if this was planned or if they just did it on the fly. But what they did is they had every single person stop playing, stop playing their game, you know, people that put money into the game, they're like, no, stop playing. They put all the machines to the side and they just put one cabinet in the middle of the floor and two chairs. And they made me sit on one side and I challenged everyone else. I don't know how many players were there, 150 players. Everyone else made a long single file line and one by one, they all challenged me until I played everybody. And that was their way of welcoming me to Tokyo, Japan, saying, you know, you're a guest in our country. We want to make you feel welcome. We're happy to have the champion of the UK here. And I was really, really touched, really. Even to this day, I, I never forget that time where they were so appreciative of having me there that they wanted to make me feel that, you know, and they set up this massive Ryan Hart Kumite where I literally played everybody. I did okay as well. I went about 60-40. I did lose pretty badly to some of the guys. But what it was is, Whoever, I, whoever won or lost, I would just stay on. Then the next guy would come on, you know? So even if I, there'd be times where I was like, man, I really want to play that guy again. want to run back. He was so good. And then I couldn't, you know, you had to go to the back and then I had to play the next guy. But yeah, that as an experience was very, very special. Um, but then, yeah, so I came back to the UK after two months and then I started to give back that knowledge that I had learned in Japan to the people in the UK. So the UK guys grew and I grew sharing that with them as well. And then I went to France, played the KOF champion in France brought that stuff that I'd learned in Japan and the UK to France with me and then learned stuff from fr France because France had a lot of talent, a lot of amazing players, a lot of tactics we'd never considered. So I brought that stuff back to the UK. And then I did the same thing. I went to the Netherlands. I went to, uh, I went to um, Italy. I went to Sweden. I went to Denmark. Um, yeah, I went to Germany. I went to Poland. I went all over Europe. I went all over Europe. I went to America as well, early 2000s. Um, I brought Mishimas to, to America, you know, America had never seen Mishimas before. I was fortunate enough that we had a, a Korean player in the UK. We were so lucky. We were really, really lucky. Um, this was in, I think, 1999. So way back, 98 even, you know, it even goes early as 98. Yeah. Uh, and he was just mind blowing. I got a phone call on my first mobile phone. It was like a brick. <laughs> and I was like, Ryan, Ryan, you've got to come. There's this Korean guy here. He's battering everyone. He's doing some weird movement we've never seen before. And it turns out he was doing wave dash. Everyone knows it now, commonly referred to as wave dash, but we'd never seen that before at all. And he's doing crouching moves from standing. We don't know what's going on. He's broken the game. <laughs> and I went down and he, he beat me fairly easily actually at the time. And then I got used to it and then I started winning some. And then it was quite interesting to watch. But yeah, um, that was our first experience of playing against Korean Mishima players. You know, that, that, that style, that wave dash, you know, crouch cancel style, we'd never seen that. And I learned that from that guy. Um, again, transferring some information without, you know, books or YouTube or internet or anything. And I took that with me eventually. Obviously, I developed it and I made it my own thing and, you know, put my own little, tuss, tuss, a little spin on, on the whole style and stuff. 
had my unique tech catches that no one else did and things like that. But yeah, I went to America, I went to LA specifically in 2001, and all the best players came then because it was like a big international called uh, Electric Council. So we had a guy from Korea, American champion, Joff, and all these other players were there. And, and uh, yeah, and I, and I brought the Mishima style with me. I mean, America had Mishima players, but they didn't have anyone that utilized all of the actual Mishima specific things, you know, using wave dash effectively, using Korean backdash effectively, using tech catches effectively, using camera angle swapping so you could switch sides so you make things cross up. Like no one were using the Mishima specifics um, at all, you know, and or, you know, even even waving into crouch cancels and stuff. It just wasn't a fluid part of the US playstyle with Mishima. They they had people that picked Jin. Kazuya Hachi, but no one was playing the right that right way. So, um, I, I managed to win against everybody in America. I, I actually beat everyone. I didn't beat the Korean guy. Um, he he beat me. Um, but we had some long tails and I did a bit better. But yeah, he was. I I think he was better. If I, you know, if I look back, I think he was better than me at the time. Um, and so yeah, I learned I learned a lot from playing him. But yeah, everyone else I was able to to win against. So it was. For the for, for the Europe guys, it was a massive success that one guy went from Europe and beat everyone in a you know in a country as big as the US. And it's something that isn't really talked about because it's not something that the, the US guys can claim like oh yeah you know it's sort of like okay we have to shut let's let's, let's shut this down never happened never happened so you don't really hear about it talked about that much. But the point is, my knowledge that I acquired around America uh, sorry excuse me around Japan Korea all over Europe helped me when I then traveled to the US. And then I learned things from the US players that no one else did, that I then took back with me to the UK, to Europe, to Japan, and so on. So this was the very first element of there being a unified FGC. Before mm. that, before that, there was no unified FGC. It was just people playing in their own communities. No one knew. People didn't even know about other communities in their own countries, let alone knowing what's, what exists abroad. It's only when I started going there and coming back and saying, hey, in Paris, there are these players, they're fantastic, they're so sick. And then going to Spain and coming back and talking about, oh my God, in Spain, and then in Italy, and, and then also talking about the UK when I go to these places so that they now know, oh, so the best guys in the UK are these guys. You know, Who's the best Jun player? Yeah, this guy. Who's the best Ogre player? And the transference of knowledge. So by the time we got internet and all these things, people knew what to start talking about because they had met me and they realized that, wow, the UK guys, they're pretty good. Or, or they're not that good at this. We're better than them at this thing. You know, the Italians, for example, they taught us so much about Tekken. We got yeah. absolutely obliterated by the Italians in Tekken Tag 1 in the beginning days. And this is just where they had developed their own style and their own take on how to play. And we learned from them, you see. So, yeah, that's wow. kind of how that worked. That's deep. That's so deep. <laughs> Yo, yeah, so... It's kind of something you will never really, it's kind of something you can never really find out about because, one, it's really old and there's only... I think in terms of the traveling part, I was the only one who was actively traveling to everywhere and bringing that around with bringing all the knowledge and sharing with everyone. So um, when people talk about me playing multiple games, um, the, 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 the strength of that was not necessarily just because I'm good at multiple games. It was the fact that I'm able to transfer so much for each community on every game, wherever they are. So I was basically a walking glossary slash index slash directory slash dictionary for the, for the whole continent of all the fighting games that I played. And um, yeah, so that's that's why that was such a bit. If I only played just one game, I'm not sure that would have had such an impact. Um, but mm. yeah, the spread, the spread definitely helped things. Well, hopefully, you know, we can be the starting place to try to put this type of knowledge that you have in a more academic context. And I know that you've been studied by, 
I think scientists to, you know, to see how you think yeah. and how you're able to. Oh, yeah, I remember that. <laughs> so, I mean, like, uh, hopefully there will be more serious uh, examination into fighting games and gaming as a language mm. in our form. I mean, what has your experience been with that? I'm sure you've been talked to a lot about this sort of, you know, phenomena as far as like fighting games and gaming being a language and different cultures, different styles. I mean, this is, I compare you a lot to Bruce Lee in the same way that you kind of, you know, you have a, a deconstructionist approach to gaming. Like you have your own perspective and you study world perspectives and you study different styles to develop your own style. And, you know, you're not, you know, Bruce Lee was kind of a, he was a, you know, he was an outlier in, you know, you know, in, in, in martial arts. And I think in the same way that you are it with, with fighting games, you have your own, style that is no one else's style so mm. maybe so there's two parts of this talk a little bit about um your experience with institutions exploring the academic side of gaming if you've had any experience with that at all and then secondly maybe talk a little bit about style like with when we talk about arcadism me and kai we talk a lot about um you know style in gaming and style as it involves to you know, our lifestyle, you know, and you've done that the Red Bull promo, which like really showcased gaming as a part of lifestyle. So mm-hmm. uh, talk a little bit about the streets and the style that you had during that time. And, and I mean, you're, you're black, but you're not American, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you're not really African, you know, quote unquote. So it's like, you're kind of in these different worlds in these different spaces. How did you, how did that affect your identity, your style, your appearance, your aesthetic? How did that affect your experience in the gaming community? I mean, so, and, and then doing it, like one last thing, you were doing it way before the internet, way before Instagram, way before mm-hmm. all of this, you know what I mean? Like, what were you inspired by? What was going on? Walk us through that. Now, one, one thing just to, you know, just to give us some framing is you have to remember that it was very, um, you know, it, it, it was seen as a negative thing to play games back then. You know, you're just wasting your time, you're wasting your life. What are you doing with yourself? Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? This is, this yeah. is for kids. This is for kids. You know what? Why? You know why don't you? Why don't you play? Why don't you play basketball? Why don't you go to football? Why don't you? You're gonna join a gang. You're gonna do drugs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it was seen as like separate from that, but it was just as derog. You know, it was just as bad to be involved in. You know, as if, if you were if you were a teenager or, or older and you were still playing games, you're just wasting your life, basically. You know. Yeah. So, um, with that said. Um, I was in college, so I wasn't like bottom of the barrel because like, oh, you're in college and, and you're playing. Okay, you'll grow, you'll grow out of gaming. This is just a phase. You, you, you know, you're in college, that's gonna, oh, okay. So yeah, it, it's cool. You've got your little thing, but that, you know, that will go in time. No one believed in it. No one believed in the potential of gaming or that it had any educational benefits. They helped you work on reaction time or hand-eye coordination. They could help you with disabilities. You know, old people, young people now that don't have good coordination, gaming helps with stuff like that. Gaming helps with memory, you know, learning where things are, positioning, you know what I'm saying, just strategizing. All of these things have have great benefits for an adult in later life. Being organized, learning how to plan things. Do you know what I'm saying? So Mm -hmm. I think that what happens is there's a lack of, at some point, there's a drop-off point where people don't understand gaming past a certain area. So... They won't look at, they'll look at Silent Hill and think someone's just wasting time. They won't understand that this person is 
prioritizing you know where they now go and get the key but wait a minute we need to get the map first so we know where to get the key from but we can't find the map without the torch so we'll go to that room to get the torch and you, you're kind of micromanaging this entire project in the game you know right. and and when you don't have access to the game like to the inner workings of the game yourself it just if you just look at someone manipulating one pixelated character on the screen who's walking around a dark room with a torch it just looks like, what are you doing? <laughs> but you don't understand how fun, you know, intriguing and engaging that is as an experience for a person to do with or without friends. I mean, this is something that provided comfort and company for someone. This is someone that probably didn't have a big social life that was able to now feel, you know, that they could do something that, they, that integrated them into a world that was meaningful for them, you see? And, and this, is, this is one of the things. So the same thing with fighting games just two characters fighting, but there's so much depth in what they're doing. There's so much strength in the mind games, the way that they're using their brain against someone else's brain. A game of chess can look like the most stale thing on the planet, but there's depth in there. You know, mm. these aren't just two guys sitting down with cups of coffee. Like this is deep what they're doing. So um, I think, yeah, the, the, the inability to translate what's happening in games to uh, a format that people can digest is one of the, you know, was one of the things that made it very, very difficult as a gamer, a gamer coming up in the 90s because people weren't interested in why you're gaming. They just wanted to know that you're not going to do it for too long. <laughs> okay, well, you know. So, um, but yeah, um, we didn't have, you know, like these days, it's cool to game, isn't it? We have the university club now, you know, we, we, you know like, like back in the day you had the book club. Now we have the, the Counter-Strike club, you know, we, we have the Dota team university team that play that play uh, Hearthstone. Do you see what I'm saying? It's now been integrated into what we would consider generic establishments for progressive learning, you know? And I think back then it was like, no, what? Gaming a part of a curriculum at this school? No way, you know? Whereas now you have, you have, um, you have schools and you have universities with courses in esports, in pro gaming, you know? You can, you can play, you can learn to be a pro player basically at school. Do you see what I'm saying? In, in Korea as well, they have this kind of thing happening as well. So, uh, I mean, definitely come leaps and bounds, but yeah, definitely one of the difficulties for me back then was one, fighting myself on, is this worth, you know, what I'm with the priority I'm giving it? Um, am I wasting my time here? But on the flip side, it was like, this is giving me comfort. This is giving me enjoyment. I'm having fun here. I've met some great people. It's actually, you know, I really enjoy this. And I've always been a bit of a rebel. You know, if I'm doing something that I enjoy and you're like, no, this is crap, I'll probably still keep doing it if I like it. So at some point I just made the decision for myself. And um, yeah, I think gaming was always something that clicked right with me, even if I had a bad day, even if I lost horribly. The fact that I could recreate myself every time always meant that there was a foot in the door the next time, you know, and I wanted that. And I wanted to, I wanted to rectify what I'd done the time before and almost be even better than you know, the, the time I was good before. And you're always, you're always challenging yourself. And um, I think being an only child um, made me quite used to challenging myself. Um, sounds quite sad, but that's kind of how it is. You know, I was always used to needing to, to better, to, I need to be better than who I was yesterday, which is a great, I think that's a great, I don't know, motto for life, right? You know, not even just gaming, just like, I need to be better than I was yesterday. Like, as simple as that. So, um, yeah, and, 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 I, and, I, and I very much... Um, tried to manifest that in my gaming career. You know, I always tried to, and it wasn't easy. 
I mean, there was no training mode. You couldn't just load up your system and go to training mode and pick your character and away you go. I had to put two credits into the arcade. I had to use my elbow to manipulate the two-player stick while doing what I wanted to do on the one-player stick and then press the buttons on the other side to make him start the move that I want to go through with the projectile on the other side. So just to create a simple scenario where I had already... So, yeah, okay. So the first thing is you think of a scenario and then you think, would this work? So you have to think up this scenario in your head. And I'd have my little bits of A4 paper and I'd write it down. This is like King of Fighters 96 days. So it's still like, you know, mid-90s. And I used to write it down on paper and I'd be like, all right, next time I'm at the arcade, you know, I could be at dinner or whatever at home, but I'm going to be like, next time I'm at the arcade, I'm going to try this. And then I'd go to the arcade and then I would put in two credits. And I'd have to wait till there's no one there as well because otherwise they're playing. And then I'll put in two credits and then I'll try the thing and then it would work or it wouldn't work. And So yeah, so um, you were asking about the um, style during the, during the time, like how did your style, you know, affect, or did you think about it? Was it just you being you, or what was I think it like? Was just, where... I think that was just me being me. Um, and I also think that at some point I recognized that I want something that not everyone else wants. So at that point, once I'd realized that, I realized that I'm actually probably quite alone in where I'm trying to go. And I stopped thinking that I need to feed. I don't know. This is this all happened subconsciously, though. This was never a conscious thing like, right, OK, I'm going to stop doing this. But it's just how it happened. You know, I, I started just pushing my own ideas with myself. You know, I'm going to try this next time. You know, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to test this out. I want to see. And the more I just went along with that train of thought, more ideas came and more creative thoughts and more what about this combo? What about that? Does this move go through projectiles? Okay, you know, is it fully invincible? Can it go through other things? Or, and then you test it out and it's, oh my God. So you didn't have anything to like show you these things. You just have to test every single special, normal, what are the frames? You didn't know the frames you got to see if, it, if it's faster than that move, you know? Can you link it to this button afterwards? Can it link with the super? So yeah, a lot, a lot of work, a lot of work to be proficient on fighting games back then. Um, I mean, but then, you know, if I played someone from Japan, they already had all the frames. They already had the guide. They knew all the combos. Everything was given to them because they had literally sections of bookshops in Japan dedicated to just how to play games. And you'd have shoot 'em ups there. You'd have like all the robot games there. You'd have all the fighting game stuff there. You'd have all the puzzle game stuff there. And full like 200 page hardback books of strategy you know for, for like one game <laughs> you know and they had that for every fighting game tekken street fighter mortal kombat they had like oh, so they didn't have Mortal Kombat. excuse me i think it's like i don't think they have the game there but yeah so yeah tekken street fighter fatal fury king of fighters art of fighting last blade samurai showdown world heroes you know fighters history they had guides for every game the uh, doesn't matter how old they had guides for like walking, like they had guides for Vendetta and Crime Fighters, like, you know, these side-scrolling walking beat-em-ups. They had guides for Sunset Riders, you know, like they had guides for just any kind of Shinobi, Golden Axe, Double Dragon, Double Dragon 2, Double Dragon 3. They, they had guides for everything. So being there was cool. You know, it was like, wow, this is, this is so sick, man. I've, ne I've never seen anything like this where I'm from, but they've got just, they've got this in abundance. Um, and of course, they had arcades on every corner, so you couldn't not find an opportunity to try this stuff out that you'd uh, seen. But yeah, m in my case, it was literally just using what I had. I have a local arcade and I have my brain and I need to make it work, you know. Um, and it wasn't until the tournament 
the national championship for King of Fighters 96 was announced. So by that time, I had lost the, the first tournament that I told you about in 94, the Super Turbo tournament. I lost the uh, King of Fighters 95 tournament, but I did that cool upset. And I came fourth in the Tekken 2 national championship. Um, so this was my fourth tournament, the King of Fighters 96 one, which was just a few days after the Tekken one, actually. So I was already playing more than one game seriously at the time. But yeah, um, when when that tournament was announced, after I had lost the 95 one, where I, like, I thought I was really good and then realized I wasn't, I decided I would try to take it seriously. I would actively try to improve myself. I would go down and play with the other guys in central London, where the better players play. I would go there as much as often, um, which was a good two hour trip. You know, I lived quite far and I didn't know how to get there quickly back then. Um, and yeah, and, and, and I would I would, uh, I would make it work. I would try my best and I would lose, if I lose tournament, then I know I did my best and so on. So that, that was kind of the case. I think that, um, yeah, that's when really I started carrying a notebook with me every day with pen, pen, with a pen, so that if I was on the bus and I had an idea, I could at least commit that idea to paper and it wouldn't be lost. And then the next time I got to the arcade, I could try it out, you know. And um, yeah, and I just had this notebook full of tactics, potential teams I could try out on King of Fires to try and find better combinations for matchups combos I wanted to test out, like just all kinds of things that I wanted to put together to give me the edge over the competition. Um, and then, yeah, the grand finals was me versus uh, Motohide Nishio from Japan. So even right back from the 90s, I've been playing, I've had to play against really strong Japanese and Korean players in the finals. It's not like back in the days we had it easier. It was also these very, very developed <laughs> East Asian players, even from way back. I don't know. It's just always been like that. They've, they've just, they're just so skilled. They're so, you know, talented that they've just always been the guys to be, you know, even from what, I mean, 1996, this is, I was 17 years old and I'm fighting a Japanese dude in the grand finals and I beat him. And then that was my first tournament win. And then the next, then in, then I won a couple of tournaments. Like I won the, the Virtua Fighter 3 uh, European Cup thing. And then I won uh, the Tekken 3 uh, World Championship. Uh, that No, sorry, that was two years later. Um, Two years after that, I won the KOF one, I won the trip to Japan where I, got, I lost really badly in the tournament that I flew out for, for Air Guides. Um, but then while I was there, I entered, a, it was like a King of Fighters 98 World Championship where they had all these different people there. And that was held at the, I think it was the Amusement Arcade Show, like in this massive venue. It's kind of like the Tokyo Game Show sort of thing, but like back then they had a few different ones and one of them was the Amusement Arcade Show. And yeah, King of Fighters 98 World Championship, and I managed to win. That's the first time I ever won a World Championship. And then the next year, I won the Tekken 3 World Championship in 1999. So I was 20 then uh, when I won that one. So yeah, by the time I was like 19, I was very, very established as a as the top you know player around um, kind of thing. But none of that was planned. None of that. I never knew I would win. I never. It was just this is fun. I enjoyed doing it. I want to develop my own style. I want to be unique from everyone else. And I felt like I was behind. Once I'd had that experience of learning what's out there, I, I realized, wow, we really need to, you know, if I want to make this work, I have to try and do something that no one else is doing, you know. And um, going to that King of Fighters 95 tournament where there were so many amazing players that I had no chance against was like, okay, if I'm going to do this for King of Fighters 96, then something has to be done differently. And I just yeah, used all the resources the best I could really. Which win are you most proud of? Which accomplishment is the or Kai? Did you want to ask a question? 
No, I, no, I was, I was responding. You, uh, you can go ahead. You can finish it. I, I was just gonna say, which, which award are you most proud of, Ryan? Like, which, which win um, is the one for you? So there's a lot of different ones for different reasons as well, and depending on the era, you know, depending on what the conditions of my life was like at the time. Yeah. Like I won the Tekken Six National Championship, but at the time it meant a lot because my I was just going through so much. You know, I was going through a very, very busy period in life where I wasn't able to commit as much time as I usually do before a tournament. And so winning that was big for that reason. It was like, I'm, I still managed to get first place here, you know? Um, right. but, but really like stuff that just really stays with me. Um, so being the Korean champion in the death match uh, for Tick and Tag, I, I've mentioned this quite a few times. Um, but yeah, that, that is something I really hold dear because uh, that was in 2003. And no, no, I, th I think not like it was something like no one had ever beaten a Korean champion on Tekken Tag. Um, and it was like this monumental groundbreaking moment where someone had won. It wasn't like even Japan hadn't beaten someone from, from, from Korea on, on Tekken Tag. They were just... Korea were that dominant. They were that dominant that they were the only ones that stood in their own path against each other and no one else got a look in. No one could take on the Koreans on Tekken Tag 1. And, and there were moments, you know, there were, there were times I think like, I think it was called, uh, I think Seok, because there was a time where the Koreans went to Japan and I think Seok and Park or someone played Raijin Lee and uh, uh, Hai, I forgot his name now, he's a commentator now on Street Fighter. Drawing a blank. Um, oh man, Mika player. Anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. But yeah, so uh, you know, this uh, Hamiko, Hamiko, his name is Hamiko. So Hamiko and Raijin Lee were taking on these two um, Korean players, Seok and someone else. And yeah, that was a close set. That, I think that's one of the times where the Japanese did really well. But yeah, uh, in terms of just like long, like deathmatch sets. Um, no one had ever beaten a Korean guy. And then I came along and everyone was insulting me like, oh, you, you know, they, they had, um, we had internet by this time. This is like 2003, so there was internet. But um, we had uh, Tekken Zaibatsu forums and the American guys were just very rude. Uh, you know, they were, I mean, I was in my early 20s at the time, so I was probably quite defensive as well. I could probably, I probably started a lot of flame wars with my defense, I like, know, you know. Why are you saying that to me? You don't know who I am. But it was quite hardcore, man. They insulted my family. It got really personal just because I said I wanted to come to America and challenge the Korean champion because I heard he's in town. That was all it started from. As soon as I said that, they're like, how dare you? Who do you think you are to challenge the Korean champion? And, and my take on at the time was, well, I've done really well in Europe. I need to learn what's next. I need to challenge the best. Everyone says Korea is the best. I've seen a few videos that tell me Korea is the best. I need to play them myself now. And um, there was this time where the Korean champion was going to be in America for this one opportunity. This was just going to be the only time he's in town, you know, and, and it was the first Evo coming up. And uh, so I said, okay. And I, you know, this wasn't the days of uh, me being sponsored. Uh, the first few sponsorships I'd had had uh, gone. And so it was just me. I was working full time uh, after studies. And that was it. I just had a full time job and I used to play games, you know, in my spare time. But I was of a pro level already anyway. So, I saved up my pretty pennies and I, you know, booked a flight and I went to America. Um, <clears throat> and we played for four hours, me and this Korean guy, and I beat him 26-21. And everyone was shocked. People clapped, mm. some people were 
disappointed because they wanted the Korean guy to win. But no, it was it was unheard of. It was literally something that had never happened before in the history of Tekken, never been imagined. No one had even come close. It was just not. It just wasn't a talking point that someone could be especially because I'm not even Asian as well. I think that was also a big deal. You know, a lot of the reasons why I got a lot of insults is people didn't think that a non-Asian would ever have a chance against a top Korean. You know, mm. if you're Asian, then you can have the conversation. But if you're not even Asian, bro, like, what are you, you know, what are you doing? So what's it about? Why? I mean, not, not, what's it about? Why is it the Asian thing? It's like, oh, if you're Asian, then you can have a chance. It's what people are accustomed to, you mm. know. If if it's, if you talk about athletics, people are going to talk about black guy from Somalia who's great at long distance. You know, I mean, it's just what we're accustomed to. We we've, we've been conditioned to accept certain things in certain places. You can't be good at this if you're not. You know, you can't be the best sumo wrestler unless you're from Japan. That's just something that people take for granted. I don't don't ask me. I don't know why. But one of the reasons that people don't like accepting change is because it messes with their ecosystem of the world. It messes with their understanding of what they consider normal, inverted commas, normal. If you can make a black guy be a top Korean guy, then what else that I've understood is wrong? What else can be changed? Oh my God, I don't recognize my own world anymore. This is not, you know? And also a lot of people use you or your stature or your lack of positioning in a certain field to kind of reconfirm their own insecurities or their own disbelief or their own lack of confidence, you know? Mm. Well, this guy's not gonna, I would never have a chance against this guy. So this guy doesn't have a chance either. The moment you step out of their boundaries, they're lost. So who is this guy? Now it's like, who is this guy? Do you see what right. I mean? Right. When, when, when uh, a Japanese player wins EVO, oh yeah, a Japanese player, well, yeah, that's amazing, oh my God. When a non-Japanese guy wins EVO, everyone's confused. Mm. It's not right. looked at in the same way. It's not even looked at as an even greater achievement. It's just you're weird kind of thing, you know? Of course, your close friends and fans will be like, that's amazing, loved you all the way, supportive. But just the generic layman can sometimes look at that and say, what happened here? Right. You know, they look, for the, they, look for the, they look for the problem, the fault. Was the Japanese player not feeling well? Was the, They'll try and find a way to put reasoning in a situation that confirms what they already want to believe the japanese are better koreans are better no one else can beat them ever on any day ever you know it's kind of sad because that means yeah. that they're kind of like putting themselves down <laughs> like they can't well, like this, if they're this, not this, Asian, then... this comes from an insecure mindset this right. whole package comes from an insecure mindset i can't get that girl you can't get her either it's insecurity you 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 live around your insecurities you don't realize that you're born to overcome the whole point of you being here is to overcome. If you don't face challenge, there's no value in your, in what you're doing. Right. You need to face, yeah, you need to come up against the, you know, the one in a million opportunity. You need to face that head on. Look it in the eye and say, I'm going to conquer it. That, why do people climb mountains? We need challenge. You know, the, this, is, this, is what, this is what a lot of the, the FGC guys don't understand. The whole point of you being in the FGC is not just to make a few cool friends, but if you're in it for that, that's cool. But as a competitor, I mean, I'm just strictly speaking about the competitive nature of the FGC because I have some of my best friends are from the FGC, so don't get me wrong there. But what I'm saying to you is if you're in this with the mindset of I want to be the best, I'm going to conquer, I'm going to be a champion, then you have to let go of what is 
normal, quote unquote, normal. you know, you have to let that go because you're going to be the one who's going to change that dynamic. Who, who, is, who is Sonic Fox if we just focus on what's normal? Right. Who is Arslan Ash? You know, you, the, 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 you, need to, you need to change a few things in your mindset to become anything like any of these players that you know now as prominent figures of history in the FTC. You can't right. get there just by being, you know, passive and acceptant and, yeah, well, you know, because I've been there. People lose the grand finals and they were like, well, you know, he's from Korea, so, you know, oh, he's from Japan or, you know, well. Oh, well, wow. Really, yeah, people, but, you know. Yeah, let's, he's let's a guy people that grand finals. Let's put that into terms that we understand, okay? Well, it is Daigo, though, so. Wow. Does that make more, does that, is that more relatable, relatable for you? No, yeah, well, yeah I, I've well, seen well, they won't say Japanese, they'll say, well, it's Tokido. So, you know, yeah. wow. no confidence. Yeah. yeah, you're giving the win away. If you have that- I mean, I know fraction... those guys are good, but still that just sounds lame to say. <laughs> but this is what it is though. This is what it is. You know, if you're in a competitive endeavor, you can't give anyone any quarter. You can't go into the match like, well, you know, right. it's this guy. So you've already lost half, the, you've already lost a portion of the match. There's a yeah, part of your brain- a boxing match and being like, ah, yeah. you know, it's Mike. You know, it's like, what? Yeah, yeah. See, and, and, and this is the thing. So opportunity doesn't come all the time. There are windows of opportunity. When that window is closed, opportunity is gone. When the window of opportunity comes, you need to present the best form of yourself, whether it's a job interview, whether it's a date, whether you're in the grand finals of your local, whatever. You need to make sure that you're always able to bring the best version of yourself for the time. For the time is about being realistic. If you're a top player, but like you haven't played in six months, then you're not gonna be the best version of yourself of all time, but you can try to be the best version of yourself for the moment. And that's what it's always, always about. As long as you maintain that mindset, you don't need to come with things like, yeah, but it's infiltration. Yeah, but it's this guy. You don't need that. You just do you. You focus on what you're doing, where you're going, where you need to be, and you make it happen. And if it doesn't happen on that exchange, you make it happen the next time. And this is why you need devotion to be good at fighting games. A lot of the things, uh, one, one of the things people don't understand when it comes to being the best and so on, it's about hard work. Unfortunately, the ugly truth is that the thing that you want uh, is out there, but the thing that's going to get you there is something you don't want to do. <laughs> Everyone wants to be the best. Nobody wants to work to be the best. They just want the trophy. You know, Starscream is a very, um, is a premier European Tekken player. And, and, and we were in a call the other day and he was like, you know, it's kind of like sometimes people just want to buy the trophy. And it's so true. You know, people don't want to work for it now. They just want to pay a fee, get the get the receipt, get the trophy, go go home and hang it up somewhere. You know, and I mean, obviously, it's a very ironic. Uh, sorry, it's a very extreme uh, statement, but you get the point, right? That people are not up for the hard graft anymore, the labor that gets you right. the skill set that you need to go into the finals. You know, to go into the tournament. Excuse me, and 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 just being in the tournament. That's something that happens because you're confident. You know, every champion needed a degree of confidence to get where they've gotten to. So that has to be part of it at some point. You can't always live in the realm of, well, I'm not as good as so-and-so. So at some point, you have to put that aside. Now, don't get me wrong. There's respect. You can have respect for a competitor. You can have respect for an opponent. You know, in the words of Mike Tyson, I fear my opponents, but not because he can't win. It's about himself. It's about if, they, if they're the ones that he can beat him. You know, is he going to perform? Is he going to get embarrassed today? It, every strong player has to have a degree of fear. If you don't fear, it's not real. I'm not talking about fear you can't function. Oh, my God, it's all over. I'm not talking about defeatist fear. I'm talking about reality check fear, where you know this is about to happen and it can go either way. 
even mm. though you're sick and you've battered everyone for the last 10 years or whatever, you still, every single time you perform, you have this element of fear because of the reality of the situation. You're not mm. God. Anything can happen. So you have to always embrace that reality side of things, no matter who you are, what your, re- re- not what, what your tail of the tape looks like and, and how you're feeling on the day. You always have to have that. So when well, a, lot, a lot of people that don't have that, they just go in thinking, yeah, I'm the best. I'm going to, these are the ones that just get, end up getting smoked because they're just coming unprepared. They've forgotten about one element. Next thing you know, they're in the loser's bracket or they're out or whatever, you know? So there's a lot of, you know, if you play right, humility follows you. You don't have to consciously think about being humble or modest. If you play right, if your strategy is correct, you will be humble because you'll recognize what's at stake and how, I don't know how like, how, how frail that is, you wow. know? It's, it's quite ironic that trophies are sometimes made of glass because it literally, that whole, that whole thing, you know, that whole thing that you're in is very, very fragile. Whoa. That's the thing, you know, like people get caught up in the moment, like, yeah, I'm the best, no one can beat me, blah, blah, blah. I can go in. Anything you have on this planet can go in seconds. Anything. So anything you have, yeah, any anything you have today could be gone tomorrow. And that this is this is what it is. See, this is why you can't give power to people that don't know how to manage power. Being a champion is power. Why? You're in a position of influence. People will listen to you. People, people, there's, there's, there's weight in what you say now because you've got an accolade. You've got, you've got some, you've got something you can make people visualize from. Right. You know, you, you've, yeah, you've put your stature into, into something that can be visualized. You're not just, you're not just a talking head now. And what that creates now is, 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 you know, with power comes what? Responsibility. So now when you get people that don't know how to manage that, they always slip up. They start getting cocky. They start getting arrogant. They start thinking they're better than, you know, the best in the world. All this, all this cocky stuff comes out. But it's always short-lived because that's not how that functions. Not really. Now, you can be successful and cocky for a long time. But that's usually because you've just gotten lucky. You know, that, that guy hasn't come along yet. He's out there. But he just hasn't, you just haven't met him yet, you know. And it's not that you're just the best. It's just that guy, just, you haven't crossed paths yet. Right. And the, It doesn't the, the, the last re- forever. It doesn't last forever, yeah. So... I, I do think that um, if you play right and function right and train right and have the right mentality and eat and look after yourself, you will naturally generate respect for the sport or for the for the creative art. You will have that. It's all part and parcel of the same thing. All right. I guess I got one question real quick. Um, mm-hmm. Because how you've kind of contextualized the and, and kind of just to switch gears here, because yeah. we, we've kind of talked about how newer players and you know, how people kind of really are just now really digesting the the art form of fighting games. I kind of want to know from your perspective, (coughs) kind of how you've passionately contextualized the FGC, what's it going to take for the outside looking in to be able to visualize it through that scope too? Because I think once that happens, then it's going to become more acceptable. It's going to be put on a bigger stage and even bigger stage than it is now. Like you said, schools are teaching it. You know, um, I've been to a couple colleges where they're now incorporating courses as well for, you know, learning the business of, you know, quote unquote, esports and things of that nature. But what are some of the things that you think uh, that 
people can do to further uh, that understanding for people that's on the outside we, looking in. We, we are recording, right? Yes, yes. We're recording. Okay, cool. Yeah, just to say. yeah so <clears throat> what I think about that is, first up, you need to know where you're going. If I meet, if I meet Ram on the street, you know, we live, we live in the same area and I meet him on the street and I'm like, what are you up to? And we're both walking in the same direction on the street. Hey, man, how you doing? Where are you going? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to the art gallery. Oh, really? Okay, where are you going? Yeah, I'm just going to go to that shop and I'm going to get some, get some stickers. You know, I need to get some stickers for the wallpaper. Okay, cool. You know, doing the bedroom up. So we're going the same direction, but we're not going to the same place. And this mm. is what it is in the FGC. A lot of the reasons why you don't have the destination you want in the FGC is because everyone's going somewhere else. You might want big stages and big sports and all that galley. So that next person just wants um, regular events. Another person wants a local, a, a local weekly. Another person wants investments. Another person wants, you know, support with their Twitch street. Like everyone wants the FGC for something else. Of course, there's no mm -hmm. alignment. Of course, we don't make progress. Of course, there's no unity. Right. You see, and this is the thing. Before you discuss how we get the FGC to X Y, we have to talk about where we're going now. We're the ones yeah, that are right. going to fuel, we're the, we're the wood for the fire. We're going to fuel this, this baby, right? So, you know, we're pushing the train along. We have to make sure it's on the right set of rails. Everyone's trying to go somewhere else. So I think that with, the, you know, like, how do we get it to be on big stages and that? It's not on big stages because we need to, you know what? First of all, FG, the FGC, if I can talk about it as one yeah. body yeah. for a second, right? The FTC just needs to be comfortable with being its own thing. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> Before all of that, let's join, let's be part of the Olympics. So like, what are you doing though? What, where, what are you first? You right. see, as long as we yeah. still live in this negative connotation of being this poverty-driven community thing that doesn't mean anything in the real world, as long as we live in there, no point us getting to anything else because we'll never be able to maintain it. We need to get to a mindset where we're... You know how great the FTC is? It's one of the most amazing... Man, I don't even know, it's subculture, you know, you, I don't know how you want to label it, but it's one of the most amazing subcultures to come out in our lifetime. Something that brings people together from all denominations, ethnicities, backgrounds, teaches you, develops you in so many areas. You get to travel, you get to see the planet that, you know, that, that was made for you. Like all these things, all these interactions, friends that you've got that are now... Some people are even family. You've got people that have met you that have got married and, you know, they're just like the brotherhood now. The brother, right. even us talking right now, that's because of the FGC. So yeah. there's so many intertwining factors in how potent, how powerful the FGC has affected our lives. And, you know, the, the, the thing here is people are so quick, though, to follow the money trail. As soon as something else pops up that's got money, we're like, well, but we're not that. But we're not this, we're not that. People are not just appreciating what we are though, like all these cool things. You know, even mm -hmm. gaming, keeping me off this, gaming has kept kids off the streets that would have got into drugs, got shot, got into gangs, like gaming, fight, fighting game, FGC, yeah. Fireballs and Dragon Punches did that, do you know what I'm saying? And this, this, is, this is magical. This is, this is magical. Parents in Pakistan that can't afford education end up having their kids go into like gaming groups and stuff, which is better than street life of crime, you know? And, and this, is, this is a cool thing. Now you've got players like Arsene Ashu, like the best in the world, being all the top Japanese, Korean, like just but this is something that, that's homegrown in their area based on how it's been, you know, culturalized, you know, that, it, that, that as a part of a group, it's cool to, to do this thing together, you know, and they're very dedicated in, in, in their work. And so, 
Yeah, I, I feel like the FGC needs to be a bit more proud of what it is. I mean, what is a fighting game stick? Do you know what I mean? A fighting game stick, when I'm playing on a stick, people come over and look at me like I'm playing the piano. Like, what mm-hmm. are those fingers doing? This is insane. But at the same time, there's so much rhythm in what I'm performing on the screen that it's also like I'm playing the guitar, you know? Yeah. It's, like I, it's like I'm playing the saxophone. It's like I'm playing a music. Fighting game controllers are the perfect blend of a musical instrument, you know, kind of mm-hmm. like mixed mixed in with a couple of other elements as well. So, I mean, it's just really, really powerful, mm. you know, and, and that's something that isn't really, really, isn't really talked about. But the coordination that you need to, to manipulate a stick really well is not something that anyone can do. It's a trained art. Yeah. It's, it's actually a trained art. Um, so, yeah, mu- music and... Sp- but, it, but it's also very competitive as well. So it's like the perfect blend of music and sport in one component, you know? And this, again, this is FGC. Right. Again, teaching you something unique, teaching you something that you could use in, in later life or other things. So, yeah. So what, do you think, um, what do you think should happen? You think that we don't, it's, it's not safe to say that we should just keep, you know, having more introspective conversations like this to figure out... Mm-hmm where these things should go or do you, or is there a specific thing that you would like i think the messaging needs to change i think i think i think the messaging needs to change i think the messaging because you know we come from a line of negative connotations stigma you know gamers can't talk everyone's socially inept nobody went to school all these things these are from the like this is from decades ago you know And, and i just feel like if we keep living that lie, then people are going to, if we're not even sticking up for the truth, then how's anyone else going to believe in it? Do you know what I mean? At some point that has to end. That has to, that can't always be the, the, the narrative. You know, it can't always be like, yeah, because these kids wasting time on, on this. And, you know, I don't know. I, I don't think that um, it does us any favors if we give that kind of um, attention the light of day. Um, it needs to be that we're kind of pushing the the truth that you know there's a lot of cool benefits from from gaming. Um, you know, th- th- there's a lot of really interesting things in playing games. You know, it shouldn't always be just about benefits to get into something else. It's not just a stepping stone. You know, right. but yeah, I really feel that um, you know the dexterity you need, the, the the mental dexterity that you need to play is something very special that you don't get that much of from other places but the fact that it's combined with developing a social community you know and um yeah it's, it's just great look at the, the also like timing as well you know if you think yeah. about how important timing is you know um yeah i i, th- I think that uh yeah the, a fighting game controller whether it's a pad stick hitbox whatever you know you need timing and you need rhythm so that's a unique kind of thing in itself you know um, but yeah, I do think that we need to take a bit more pride. I'm saying all these points to say that there's a lot of things we can be prideful about in what we develop as fighting game players. There's a lot of things. I'm not saying you should only play fighting games for the rest of your life and don't ever do anything else. Don't get an education. Don't get a job. No, of course not. There's more to life than gaming. There's more to life than gaming. But if you're into, but if you're into games, then you can be proud of it. It's something, there are many areas you can be proud of in being a, a gamer. You know, there's a lot of cool things. If you're if you're successful in gaming, gaming is not easy. There's millions of gamers that never become successful gamers. So if you're one of those few that managed to make something of it, be proud of that. Don't just make it sound like, yeah, I'm just doing this to pass this time. I'm just building this up for that. You don't need to give any excuses for what you find interesting. This is how you are. This is you. But own it then. 
you know, when you're challenged on it, defend it with everything you got. If you're spending time on it and it means a lot to you, don't just give in to the, the, popu the population. You know, don't let the numbers win. Um, I mean, you know, just look at snooker. Snooker wasn't sponsored uh, back in the day. You know, you didn't have like big, massive tournaments. Now today you've got like, what, like whatever, like Benson Hedges Cup, you know, people win like thousands and thousands of, and you, it's televised all over the country. You know, like, I mean, it's a big thing now. Right. You know, and it wasn't always like that. And that's the thing. So you have to you have to think about it from that perspective. And, and I think that um, fighting games could also have something like that, where it's its own thing. It doesn't need to, because I, I have the feeling people feel like, you know, unless it's part of the Olympics, it's not going to be recognized. Unless it's seen as an esport, it's not going to be recognized. Let it be, let it develop to be its own thing, like bigger thing before. And I know we have Evo now, so you could argue it's already developed. But I still don't. I still hear the same negative connotations around it, though. So it's, we're not there yet, you know. I still hear the same. Yeah, but it's not really esports, is it? Yeah, but it's not right. really. It's not really that. We're always right. people are always right. comparing themselves always to behind. other people and judging. Yeah, themselves. we we need to we need to recognize we don't need to compare because it's that good. It's yeah. so good we don't need to conform to your standards. We're too busy trying to trying to fit in with everyone else. You're yeah. you're you. If I go to Italy and my friends are having a discussion there, I'm not going to try and speak fluent Italian with them because I don't speak fluent Italian. That's not me. I'm wow. going to be me there. You know what I mean? You know, and, and, and I think we should be comfortable with who we are, wherever, that's, wherever that is in the FGC. But be comfortable. This is what you're doing. This is you in, in that thing. And it's a cool thing. You know, I mean, I would never have got into anything if the people in it were like, we're not good enough for that yet. <laughs> you know, like mm -hmm. the people in it should be where the passion comes from. That should be the ones that attract you to it. Where you're like, wow, this is cool. I mean, I got into breakdancing because one of my best friends got into it and he was all over it. It was like, this is the best thing. This is incredible. Oh my God, I just want to dance. You know, that sold me the package. Right. When I heard when I heard him talk, sometimes you don't even need to see the thing they're talking about. Sometimes when you just hear someone talk about something, you know, I haven't seen the food, but the way you described the dish, that's what I'm ordering sure. next time I go to that restaurant. Oh, for sure. You know? And yeah, and in the FGC, people need to, you see, it's it's gotten a bit lame, you know? It's lame if you play fighting games. So yeah, if you meet a girl, are you really trying to talk about fighting games on the first day if she's not into that? Probably not. Because, <laughs> yeah, because there's negative connotation around what it is. Oh, you play games. Oh, okay, you're one of those guys. That's what, that's the re that's a response a lot of guys expect, you know? Yeah. That's, those things are changing a bit slowly, but I'm just saying like, we're still there though, where it's not, you're not the coolest guy in the room if everyone, like, you know, I don't know, your profession is a fireman, you're a policeman, you're a doctor, you're an internist, and then this guy's he's a pro gamer. Like, I'm not sure you'll get seen. Right. <laughs> I'm not sure right. that, that, you know, you're valued the same there. Um, and, and maybe rightly so, you know, I think being becoming a doctor and, you know, saving lives is probably more <laughs> impactful than, than playing fighting games, right? So there's that. But at the same time, you know, it doesn't mean that, what you do shouldn't be given any merit because it's very difficult to be a pro gamer and there's a lot of skill involved and there's a lot of time invested and all that stuff. So, you know, there's so much that goes into it. But the, the, the moral here is we need to take more pride in uh, how we feel about it and we need to be better at communicating it because unless the communication improves, we can't transfer any of this awesomeness that we're experiencing to the rest of the world. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Dude, we've been um, going for a while. Go ahead. Go ahead. 
yeah, I was going to say, so you did ask a question earlier, which referred to my ethnicity and stuff, and I wanted to touch on that a little bit. But yeah, yeah when I was uh, coming into this, it wasn't easy, you know, being a black young kid, because as a black young kid, I didn't have a dad growing up, and you're always trying to find yourself if you're in that situation. You know, I was an only child, didn't have anyone to follow, didn't have anyone to influence me, you know? So it was kind of like, who am I? What is this place? Oh my God, I don't like it here. Move me quickly, get me out. <laughs> black holes, follow me up, you know? And um, I mean, my parents were great. I had a, had a great childhood in that, from that angle. Um, but it was this, there was this search for meaning in some places, you know, like, what is, what is this all about, you know? And um, I feel like gaming gave me a, a reference of meaning. Like, this is where I fit. This is what's comfortable. This is what I enjoy. This is where I want to be. And, you know, and, and, and I mean, yeah, you go through the motions as a kid. You know, you're pretty typical. I think I was a pretty typical kid growing up. Quite happy-go-lucky and stuff. But, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, when it comes to, like, racism and, and being kind of, like, prejudged, you know, you went to a store, they start following you because of how you look, you know, that, that kind of thing. Right. And I was quite, I was quite poor. I didn't always have the best clothes growing up. I, you know, I didn't have the best look. You know, nowadays I get complimented on my fashion sometimes, but none of that was happening back then. I, I used to have, <laughs> I remember having the same pair of corduroys for a while. This is when I was very, very young, like primary school. But I do remember these brown corduroys, man. They were my, they were, my, they were the pride and joy of my very, bare wardrobe <laughs> but um yeah um you know it, it's just i know you grow up and <coughs> these these come <coughs> these become these stories become things that kind of uh, form you as, as a person you know but um i remember lots of situations like um just people just don't believe i, I don't know I went for a job interview once at this restaurant um a, a friend of mine in the technical community um he he was in the UK for a while and he uh, and I was homeless at this time. So I was in quite a desperate situation. And uh, I think I was in the 17, 18, so I think I was about 18. Yeah. Anyway, so he goes, yeah. Um, so he was over in the UK for a while from his country and he was just uh, working for a while to make some money. And he goes, yeah, I'm, I'm leaving soon. So they need to fill the position. And he said, I can give him a suggestion. So I've said that, you know, because he was, he was really cool and he, and he knew my situations. You know, I'm going to recommend you and, you, you know, I'm going to get set you up with an interview. And I was like, really? I was like, yeah, man, I'll, I'll really, I'd love if you, you know, got the job there. And it was this really fancy restaurant. I was like, oh, my God, that's so cool. And, you know, I was like, so next Thursday, you've got to go there, 2 o'clock, and you've got to ask for Mr. Blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, cool. So I went there. And I got to say, <laughs> I was really excited. Uh, but when I got there... I was a bit early. I was in the area anyway, and I was a bit early. And I went past there, and I looked in, and man, they were dressed suave, man. And when I saw that all the clientele in there, they were just, man. Every man had a cravat on in there, like it was really smart, just proper debonair. Like just from outside, I was really intimidated. I was like, oh man, I'm not. Is it that one? I kept looking at the address to make sure I had the right one. I was like, I'm not. It's in Soho, so yeah. Um, it was this like French brasserie. Anyway, so my interview was two o'clock, and it was coming up to two. So I went to the door and introduced, uh, I went to the door and went in. And the waiter, <laughs> the waiter just gave me this dirty look, man. He just looked me up and down like the wind just dragged in some trash off the street. <laughs> he just gave me some mad look. <clears throat> and I was like, okay. You know, sometimes people don't need to speak. They've said everything with their eyes. 
They don't need to say a single, it was one of them looks where it was just very transparent, you know? Yeah. I don't even think he realized, uh, but yeah, I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's, uh, that's interesting. So um, he came to me and he said, TV for one? I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm here for an interview. I'm here to see Mr. Lola. Uh, two o'clock, he said, oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, wait here, wait here. Um, and then he went away and then he came back and he said, okay, follow me. And I went to, through, through, through the restaurant with him. One of the worst experiences, man. So walking through this restaurant, um, I, I can just say here, it was, it was all white people in the restaurant. I didn't see a single black person. Um, and, uh, and I walked through and I could feel the warmth of people's eyes beaming on me. You know, I just feel like it was just like, oh my God. Um, so I went through to this, like the back, he took me through the kitchen and went upstairs. It was like the manager's office, right? And he entered in and went in and I, and I sat down. The manager wasn't there yet. He just said, yeah, wait here. Okay, I'm sitting down. And about 10 minutes later, this guy shows up and he was, he was really nice. He just, you know, I, I went to stand up and he went, no, 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 stay seated. And he came and shook my hand. And, uh, and, 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 he, and he was, he seemed really cool. It was just like, you know, yeah, and it's been a difficult day and all this has happened. And he was really open and it seemed almost like he was talking to me like I was his friend, you know, he's talking about his personal things, you know, yeah, this has happened today. And, and I was just like, oh, okay. I see why my friend liked it here. Like, they're, they're super open and that. He's like, yeah, you know, um, he's just like, yeah, you know, one of the uh, one of the staff had this happen, so I had to do this for that. But he sounded just so kind and caring. And then it hit me, guys. He hit me with the, the bombshell. Yeah. He, I was wait. It was going so well that I was waiting for, you know, what, so, you know, can you start Monday? Okay, yeah, come 9 o'clock. He comes out with... Yeah, um, I know you're a good friend of blah, blah, blah. So, you know, I wanted to, you know, say yes to his offer. I wanted to, you know, acknowledge him. But I'm really sorry. We, we don't hire your kind. And I was like, what? And I was like, yeah, um, I, I, I know it's bad. Um, we, we, we just don't hire people that look like you. And I didn't know what to say, guys. I, I honestly did not know. I didn't know. What do you say after that? Okay, bye. Like, I, I, I was lost. And um, he, he, he just said something like, he said it's like it's bad for business or something. <laughs> he said he said we won't we don't get as many customers if we or so, he said he, he tried to explain it. He tried to explain it to me in a way that may, would make me be like as if I'm going to be like oh, oh that's why oh, why don't you just open with that yeah cool all right see that I was broken man. He he wow. broke me. He really broke me. I don't think I talked for the, for the rest of the day because uh, after that so I left and I went back to the arcade and, and my friend was saying he said how did it go and and. Um, because I was back so soon, he thought that I'd gotten the job and I was like back already and you know, I'd gotten my uniform and my start time and he thought, I'm in there and, and I had to tell him, I had to, I had to tell him, you know, I had to break it all to him, like, yeah, he, I didn't get it and that's the reason and he was like, what? No, let's go and I was like, no, it's all right, don't worry about it and he, went, he wanted to go back there and cause an uproar. But to be honest, by that point, I didn't want to work there, you know, if that's how, because even... To, now looking back, even the way they looked at me when I was walking through, and the way the waiter looked at me, like even that, I don't think I would want to. Um, so yeah, the, the restaurant is a. I mean, I, I don't know if it still exists. The, the street still exists. A very famous street in, in Soho. Um, but yeah, it wow. it really hurt me, man. It really hurt me. I didn't talk. I went back to the, the, the arcade and yeah, and, and he tried to talk to me, and I just couldn't talk back. I was just like, yeah, didn't get it. Looking down at the floor, depressed. Um, but this is the life I grew up in, you know, growing up back that time, there were a lot, there's a lot of that. And it wouldn't always come out in direct statements like we don't hire your kind, but sometimes it would just be the way they look at you. 
it'd be the way that they treat you when they when they interact they treat you different to you're with a white friend and they treat you different just because they can see that he's white and you're not you know if it's a phone call they're fine but in person sometimes you, there would be some difference in the, the the way that they approached you and stuff not as uh not as bad as in the us though i've seen some horrible stuff in the us i don't think it's quite that bad but there were definitely some times where I was impacted by the way I look, and that didn't stop when I traveled. You know, when I traveled to Italy, I traveled to Japan, they definitely sort of could see the, the complex sometimes. I remember a girl, we were waiting for, um, we were at the arcade, and it was about 10 to 15 of us who wanted to go to a restaurant together. And we were waiting for one guy, and his girlfriend was there. Um, if he's listening, he'll know. But yeah, his girlfriend was waiting with us uh, to all, we were all going to go to eat together. And, uh, and she was Japanese and, um, and I, I can't remember what, I can't remember what opened it, but I had like a, get a, a guide, a King of Fighters guide with me. And I was looking at, looking at the, the pictures, you know, and I couldn't read any Japanese at the time. And she says, oh, can you read that? And I said, no, no, but I want to, I really want to learn. And I was really happy that she spoke to me because I wanted to ask her a translation or something. So, cause she had spoken to me, I couldn't ask. But then she said, don't bother learning Japanese. Don't. And I said, why? Isn't it useful? She said, no, no, you will never learn it. I was like, wow. what? She said, no, no, you, you know, she didn't want to get there. I know where she was trying to go with this, but she didn't know how to quite get there. And, you know, she was saying, yeah, you know, um, it's a very difficult language, very difficult language, not good for you, you know, but, and she's just trying to tell me in the most simplest of English words that I will never be, a, you know, but it wasn't, because it was a hard language, it's you will never get it, you mm. know? And yeah, like, it, it was that. Like, it was, like you couldn't. And, she, and, and like, she did at some point, she said, you know, well, I, I want to say someone like you, someone like you, what do you mean? Tell me like, what do you mean someone like me, a man? Like, what, what do you mean someone like me? She said, yeah, wow. you, you, you know, you're, you're kind, you're kind, you're kind. And she kept saying, you're kind. And then I started getting upset. I mean, this is my dude's girlfriend. I don't really want to, I've never met her, but I don't really want to like, do you know what I mean? We're about to all go to dinner. It's like a nice, a nice vibes. And she's coming up with your kind. There's other black people there with us as well. And I'm just like, <laughs> are they hearing this? No one was listening. They were all like watching the games and, and you know, arcades are generally quite loud. But she was like, yeah, yeah. And this was a bit of ignorance from her because she's from Japan and she's spent very limited time outside of the country from what I understood. This is what I was explained later. I was pissed mm -hmm. the whole time. I didn't care about the explanation, but this is what I was explained that she hasn't had a lot of experience with time around other people, let's just say other, other, um, other people, right, outside of Japan. Right. So her, her, um, she just had very little insight into stuff like that, you know, and, and in Japan, she probably 90% of her interactions are with actual Japanese, you know, 99% of interactions are with Japanese people. And then the only interactions with foreigners as with Japanese people that have lived there forever sort of thing so she doesn't know that you know but I, I don't know at some point I just felt everyone was making excuses for her and then they're like oh Ryan man calm down but I was really upset <laughs> because <clears throat> I didn't speak any Japanese at the time and so I was really like I think it impacted me I think it it affected my confidence a little bit even though I was still determined to learn it did make me think but what if I can't know and it made me I was so angry that she made me even think that, that I would yeah. doubt myself. Like, cause she really went in on me. Like, yeah, you know, there's people that have tried for 20 years. Who do you think you are that you're gonna be the one to get? And she just kept like, whatever I would be like, yeah, but I'm gonna try anyway. She'd be like, no, you're just wasting your time. You know, you're stupid. And, and then she started like insulting me and stuff. And I'm just like, am I really just 
is this really that out of my depth? Like, what's going on? Man. Yeah. And it's just like, I just really felt like, just like a waste, man. Yeah. If I ever got a chance to meet that piece of work again, I would have so many things I want to say to her. That's what I just said in Japanese. But yeah, <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, and it's, oh man, that really impacted her. And I feel like, because um, she was Japanese, she's kind of like the, you know, I'm hearing it from the horse's mouth kind of thing. Like you're the, you know, she, if she had been from any other country, I don't think I would have been that bothered because she was a Japanese person. She's someone who knows the language, you know, so she knows what she's talking about. She says that the language is too hard for me, kind of. I think I gave her that credit. But now looking back, I'm so angry that I wasn't able to diffuse her negativity a bit easier. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, so then. Yeah, that's powerful. That's a powerful story, man. And I was actually going to bring that up earlier about how, like, you know, you are, you do know multiple languages. So, you know, and how that affected your, uh, you know, the way you think. I mean, the, the, point of the, Jap- the point, sorry, sorry to cut you off a second, but the point of the Japanese story is just to show you that in my FTC career growing up as a, a young black guy in South London, it was about diffusing negativity all around you, the way people look at you on the bus, the way people talk to you, the way people kind of dismiss you, they try and dismiss you because you look a certain like it, the whole journey was about diffusing negativity, whether it was verbally, whether it was physically, or and usually it was always mentally to some degree. But my whole path has been, whether it was traveling, you know, I go to America, what are you doing here? Oh, you're from the UK, how did you get here? Why do you have money to, you know? And, and just <laughs> neg- negative energy everywhere. And, and that's one skill you need in this, in this world, no matter who you are, is learning how to diffuse negative energy. And everyone's got their techniques, but that's something you need to develop, like just, People often say you need to have a thick skin, but that's not gonna, you need to learn how to manage that, that negative energy. You know, just having a thick skin means that at some point it could still get in, right? But you have to learn how to, to deal with that and, and you can't let it impact your goals, dreams, ideals, and you, know, you have to be able to stay focused and also be able to maintain enough capacity to help your others. It's not just about you on this planet. You've got to help your family, you've got to help your friends, you know? You've got to be there for people. So you need capacity and learning how to increase and create more capacity for yourself is a good way to help others around you on the planet. And that's something that's always very, very uh, important, I, I think, in my opinion. Definitely, definitely. Definitely. Science, the gyms, yeah. the gyms, yeah. 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 The training mode for the brain. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. You've definitely expanded our minds and got us, you affirmed some things a little bit of everything I, I know i got a lot mm. to think about man i appreciate that a bunch um no wow. problem, for man. sure pleasure for sure pleasure um yeah. luckily my mom was really supportive you know when she found out what i was doing all those nights she was like oh this is you know she was happy that i'd gotten myself into something that was active that was positive and i was doing well you know and it had a lot of uh, good good there was a lot of goodness in there i think parents need to make a make it an effort to always support their kids in, in stuff like that, you know, because I'm sure my mom didn't really understand what the big fuss was about. You know, when I think back, I'm sure, I'm sure she didn't really get it. Right. But, or maybe she did, maybe I'm underestimating, you know, her there, but she was just so kind to me. She was so supportive and she just, she just loves seeing me happy and, and, you know, moving forward wow. in my direction. And she just supported that. And I, I'm always grateful because I hear horror stories. You know, my mom took my PC away <laughs> so I couldn't play Fortnite. Or, you know, like I just read these stories and, you know, 
they wouldn't buy me a console. I didn't have a TV in my room till I was 20 something, you know, and moved out, got my own place. That's the only way I could get a TV, you know, and it's just like, wow. So, okay, so there's those experiences, but I never had any of that, you know, so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm very happy to, to share these stories. Thank you, man. And we're grateful to have, have you in the community still working and still caring and pushing, putting out the trying, good work, man. man. I think one interesting fact is, um, so it's interesting, I'll go on Twitter or, or whatever, or Reddit, and, and people will be comparing me to players now. You know, <laughs> go online and, what would happen if Ryan plays Problem X, or if Ryan plays Arsenal Ash, or if Ryan plays Nia, and you know, and it's, well, Nia's a bad example, he's quite an Oscar player, but you know, they'll be looking at players that are today's players and then comparing me. But what they don't realize is this isn't my generation. That's this isn't it. my this isn't my era. This isn't my I not many people know this, but I'm born in the 1970s. Right. I was right, born right. in the 1970s. So, you know, my heyday, my prime was around that night like the 19, let's say like the late 1990s, 2000 era. You know, when I when I won like those two world championships in the two years and won all those like multiple game tournaments and stuff like that, winning the nine DF tournaments in a row. Like, that that period when I was about let's say from 17 years of age up until like 20 something. I think I won my first Evo when I was 24 or 25, you know? So that, that was my time. Anything after that, all the tournaments I've won after that, that's just extra stuff. I've already solidified myself as the person I wanted to become. And this is just extra. So it's really nice when people don't even recognize that actually I'm just in their space having fun because I can. It's not, I don't, I'm not here to prove anything or you know what i mean it's it's quite nice to have that where players will compare me to players now you know and even the generation before was also after my time technically but it's like oh you know can ryan be daigo can ryan be infiltration can ryan be these guys and it's like oh wow cool <laughs> i, I, I kind of it's funny you brought that up because i mean and this is this will be my last question but mm. you know it's yeah, I, I, I've seen other videos that talk about that, like who's the GOAT and stuff like that. And everybody kind of has their own parameters and how they, they mm. judge the players. But that's that's a very pertinent thing that you brought up. I think why people get it confused is that you it, it was during like the Street Fighter 4 era. You were mm. still pretty dominant during that time, for sure. Had notable mm. moments then. Yeah. But I but but when you crossed over into that era, then it's like it's almost like the Floyd Mayweather syndrome. You know, like he, everybody only looks at like the money Mayweather and not the pretty boy Floyd type of era, yeah, right? Yeah, that's true, that's true. And, and so they compare him to, you know, Errol Spence, whoever is still fighting a day. Mm. But I, but, but I, I want to get your thoughts real quick on how that transition was for you because you, you got to pretty much see it unfold in front of your eyes. Because I think Street Fighter 4, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed as if it kind of blended the two eras a bit. It was pretty pivotal, if, if you want to speak on that real quick. I think that when Street Fighter 4 came out, in the beginning, it was quite intertwined with old and new. Um, but after a while, I think the, 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 the remnants of memories from the Street Fighter 3 or 2 days were kind of a bit gone, you know, a bit buried. And it was now this new influx of players playing Street Fighter 4, and that's what it was now. This is what we're doing here. Um, and so, yeah, if you wanted to get on board, you had to very much be a fully fledged Street Fighter 4 player. You didn't get 
any extra props to being a 3S player, unless you're playing 3S, you know, and that was it. And, and you still had that scene. That scene still thrived and existed. You had Gutter Trash in the UK. You had Corporation Cup in Japan. Like, each area still had their tournaments going for 3S, but SF4 was where it was at, especially once they introduced the Capcom Pro Tour, you know? So, for me, um, you know, gaming for me has always been a massive, massive hobby. I've not been the biggest person trying to get this sponsorship deal or be so I've ended up with sponsorships because they came my way but that was never my goal my goal was always to work well study first but then work and then play games part-time it was just my hobby this is my sport this is my you know activity that I do when I'm free um and I enjoyed that you know I mean let's be realistic do you really want to play for your rent money that's kind of risky, right? You know, if you, if you don't make top eight, you're not paying the rent out. The landlord ain't trying to hear that, you know? So I, I always felt that it was better to play for fun because that's where the enjoyment is and the, the pressure is less there, isn't it? Because you don't have to win to mm. pay significant bills. You know, you don't have to win to put food on the table or whatever, whatever, right? So, um, yeah, I always enjoyed it. I just played for fun. But um, uh, you were saying about um, the crossover. Yeah, so I think that it was... Street Fighter 4, when I, I didn't really notice the crossover because you still had a lot of the old school players that were still around. You still had the Sakos, you still had Tokido, you still had the Daigos, you still had a lot of players that had come from older times. So I didn't, you know, you don't realize that they're all going to go. You know, all these other players that used to play are going to disappear one day and then it's just going to be you with the newer players and a couple of the older guys, which is what we have today. You know, I mean, guys that have been playing way 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 back in the 90s that are still prominent today you could probably count on one hand on a global scale right, right. so we're talking about very very small figures now um so yeah but you know i mean in terms of the crossover and just me playing from the uk it's always been a massive disadvantage to um if i'd been american for example you know i didn't get as much um i didn't get as much of a an accolade shout for not for for, for being the for being british you know, it, it's one of those things. It, there's a, there's more numbers in the US and wins in the US are noticed because everyone watches the US events. If you win in the UK, it's not as noticed, you know, and that, that's just how it is. I mean, um, um, I beat Daigo in the UK, in a, in a UK tournament, and no one really noticed because it didn't happen in the US. If you beat Daigo at a US tournament, everyone goes crazy. If you beat him in a UK tournament, yeah, wasn't in the US. Wasn't Evo, wasn't this, wasn't that, you know? Um, you know, just a, a, an example, a good friend of mine, Alex Valle, he's called, Alex Valle is called Mr. Street Fighter. But would Alex, would Americans call Alex Valle Mr. Street Fighter if he was English? If Alex Valle had been born and bred in, in the UK, would, would the Americans call him Mr. Street Fighter? No, they wouldn't. And this is what it is. See, the, the, in the US, it's if you're not American, you're not seen because the US watch US events and that's where the bigger numbers are. So the, that's where the bigger community is, you know? And, and this is what it is. When I beat the Korean champion, the US players didn't. I mean, there were a few guys that noticed that, but. In, in, you know, because it wasn't something they could claim as, as their win or, you know, because it wasn't something that supported their scene directly, it kind of just got pushed to the side. Yeah, okay, you know? Or even if we look at more modern times, I mean, if we look at 
I think I heard a little bit more about uh, Cool Kid making top eight at Evo than I heard about Problem X winning Evo, the same Evo, you know? And it's just that that kind of thing, you know? Um, I mean, that means that the US are very good at supporting their guys, cool. But I'm just explaining that it was a slight disadvantage to be British in this whole thing. I would have been a bigger name or star or personality if I'd have been American in this whole thing with the same accolades or Asian for that matter. Being, being black and from the UK is the worst combination when it comes to um, visibility and when it comes to just being recognized, being accepted. When you're Asian, you're accepted anyway. You don't even need results. Oh, this guy's coming from Japan. Oh, he must be sick. Never seen the guy play in your life, but people will start speculating how good he's going to be. But if you're from the UK, nobody expects anything. And that is just ignorant, to be fair, from, from everybody, you know, not just Americans. Uh, people in the UK are also ignorant in some of those things too. I've been ignorant in the past as well. You know, it's just how it is. But yeah, I've noticed, I'm just saying I've noticed that, though, that there's a divide what? in what the attention you can garner based on where you're from and who you are. But one thing I noticed was like, for me, and you might feel differently about this, other people might feel differently about this, I don't know, but mm. for me, like, mm. Pound for pound, Ryan Hart is is the go. You know what I'm saying? Because nah, if you yeah, for sure. if you just look at the track record, the the consistency, you as far as I'm concerned, there might be somebody I don't know about, but far, as far as I'm concerned, Ryan Hart has been consistently great more than any other fighting game player ever. You know what I mean? Like, and it, it hasn't been around for a hundred years, so we're not talking about anything too crazy. Like, I can make that mm. statement. Like, we're talking about like you're still doing it. You're mm. still giving interviews. You're still breaking down tech. You've won more than everybody. You've won more games than everybody. You got several crazy awards, Guinness World Records. I mean, who, what, what else are we talking about? Mm. And like one of my things beyond like obviously being committed to increasing and, and, and diversifying the discourse around gaming and fighting games is like Almost as many times as I get, I'm going to mention the legacy of Ryan Hart. You know what I'm saying? You're still with this. You're still doing it. People need to include you in, in the conversation and you need to be the authority in that conversation because nobody is talking about it like you're talking about it. You know what I mean? That's my, yeah, that's my yeah. take on it. And I felt like that way for a while when I was playing video games, like coming up in the, in the 90s, like I, I was like, are there pro gamers? Because we definitely didn't have that in around where I'm from. And, yeah. and I looked it up and like one of the first people that came up was, was Reinhardt, Prodigal Son. And mm. I was like, oh, sh you know what I mean? Like, mm. there's a guy. Yeah, yeah. There's a guy, You do see, you do see all the Japanese players. You do see, you do see that. But then like you see a black person kill, not just yeah. good. Not just beating these guys sometimes, but consistently <laughs> great. And then he's not even from America. To me, that was even cooler. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It even yeah. it added this other layer of like, okay, so like, how are we going to talk about this? And like, why are we not talking about it enough? You feel mm, what I'm I saying? Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, I've had this conversation with a lot of good friends. You know, people that have come to me with this, like, hey, Ryan, how come you're not talked about a lot more? And you know, I mean. <laughs> let's stack it up like I, I i've got the accolades uh, i'm a decent guy you know i'm not like i'm not i'm not gonna you know you have to understand people have come to my house at like three in the morning with nowhere to go and i've said hey come you know like <laughs> i remember like one night about 10 guys came to my house and they were like we need to play 
What do you mean? I'm in bed, man. Coming down in my pajamas. Yeah, we need to play now. You know, we need to settle this first to ten, and the other eight guys had come to watch, and I let them all in, and I went back to bed. And these guys played, they had their session, and they left. And this is the kind of person I am. I, I do stuff like that. You see what I'm saying? And so when I go online and I see hate and stuff, I, I just I don't know where it's from, and I can only think it must be some kind of jealousy. Or I'm not perfect. Don't get me wrong. There's times I've you know, there's times at events where I haven't been able to give a person the time of day because I didn't know them or because I had other things on my mind. And I'm human, you know? I think the best word is I'm just a hu I'm human. I'm not perfect, but I'm also not like a big arsehole or something, you know? I've had a lot of encounters with a lot of horrible players and I know I'm not like that. So I don't get where the hate comes from because for me, it's either hate or it's jealousy. It's one of those two. It can't be, you're not legit telling me that accolade for accolade, I don't match up. That's, that, that conversation is not happening. So when I see myself not getting mentioned, I think in some degrees it's my own fault because I'm not that forthcoming when it comes to talking about myself because I was uh, pushed off of that uh, back in the day when I used to try and talk about myself and people would shut it down. I oh, don't be cocky, don't be arrogant. Let people talk about you instead. Don't do the talking. And then people these days tell me, well, actually the world's changed now. Now you have to talk about yourself. Now it's about self-promotion. Just look at Instagram. What are people doing? They're promoting themselves. They're promoting their brand. They're promoting their makeup line. They do the, you know, it's... Yeah. The world changed and now it's about opening up and talk. So now I've got a, a, an abundance of, of stuff to talk about, but I don't also, I also don't just want to be like, hey guys, check me out in this, you know, watch me here. And this is kind of what I end up doing because people want to see old catalogs of, of my uh, matchups and stuff like that. So I post stuff on my YouTube and things, but you know, it's sad that I have to do that myself. Why do I have to make a combo video or a highlight reel? Why do I have to do my own? When I look on the internet, I see like, you know, Bonchan highlight compilation. Daigo highlight compilation, you know, Gamer B, and all these players have these, you know, cool compilations that other people just make, you know, and I'd love to have more time. I don't need to spend time doing that stuff. But at the same time, I do want this data to get out there. I do want people to know the history. I want people to know what I've done in the scene and how much I've done and how long that's been going on for on how many different games through how many different generations of, 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 FG, of the FGC that I essentially created the FGC to a degree, like part of it, you know, like that whole community mm, gathering definitely. and things like that. So I don't understand, you know, I, do people just, just not know? Do people know, but they don't want to accept it? Do people not accept it because I don't necessarily win? I don't win today. Like I'm not like the best, I'm not going to win Evo today, but I'm kind of past that in terms of like where I am in my professional career. I've done that, all that. I've had my time of doing that. And now it's time for new kids to step up. You know, people like Problem X who won Evo, who do you think he trained with? You know, I'm not still, I'm not a null and void character. All the UK champions have had me in their training timeline at some point. Luffy said the same X, thing too. When yeah, I talked to him, yeah, Luffy said yeah, the same whether, thing. You whether whether it's Problem X, whether it's Problem X, whether it was uh, F Word, whether it was Taha, whether it was Andreas, all these UK champions were not champions before they interacted with me and I started kind of honing their their talents from within and, and you know even through the game just teaching them how to play how to think how to overcome how to adapt all these things you don't learn that overnight i know that my path has been more difficult because i'm not from asia i know that why do i know that i went to japan so i'd already had this community in the uk and stuff and everyone was great and we had close games and i started to excel above a little bit but i could still lose to players you know people were that good and also I still had my holes in my gameplay, you know, but I went to Japan and I came back after two months and I was completely untouchable, completely untouchable. They couldn't touch me. Like tournaments were a wrap. People didn't even sign up anymore. There were tournaments where when people saw my name, they didn't sign up. That's <laughs> that it got. The, do, do we have any champions today 
where when their name is seen, other people don't sign up. I don't think we even have that today. People would literally come down, see my name on the list and go home. Do you, see, do, you, do you understand the dynamics of what yeah. kind of impact I had on this? You know, and, and this is not talked about today. People don't recognize what influence I had. And, and of course, this creates a lot of jealousy. This creates a lot of, you know, like, oh, this guy, Ryan won again. Oh. So what started to happen is I would lose to one of those people would cheer. Yeah, Ryan lost. Yeah, my own community, which is not a nice experience. <laughs> but, but anyway, so um, I'm just explaining that, um, you know, going back to that point about, um, you know, like people signing up and, and, and these negative impressions and stuff. I feel like now the, I mean, I'm just thinking, I was trying to, what point was I making before? Um, before the tournament thing, what was I saying? I'm wanting to really get the data out there and, you know, it's not talked about. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, um, a lot of the influence, uh, you know, that the UK scene has had has come from me and, and oh yeah, so I, I, I this is what I was talking about. So I recognize that my journey has been difficult, um, than, than, been more difficult than a lot of the, the Asian guys because when I went there and came back, I, I recognized how much better they were in, in Japan because I was literally untouchable when I came back to the UK. You know, I, I, I was literally a lamb that had been fed to the wolf for two months and then I came out alive. And that made me this crazy strong player. And, and it also gave me the mindset that has kept me going for all these years where I went through so much sadness and, and you know, discomfort and depression in that time where I, for the first month in Japan, just getting destroyed by everyone, which is really hard to accept when you're the champion where you're from. And having that experience just built this really strong shield of defense. And now nothing can infiltrate my mind. I can overcome anything if I'm, you know, if I'm ready, if I'm, if I'm manually prepared, obviously, if I don't know the matchup or whatever, yeah, fine. But when I know all those things and I'm ready, I can overcome anything. And there's never a moment where I think I can't win, you know, and that all came from having this horrible experience younger as a teenager where I was just so broken, you know, by all the strength that they had. They were so good. Everyone was so good. Um, and yeah, that in itself just really built me up. But um, coming back and then being able to win that easily, um, it put me in a corner by myself because now people didn't relate to me anymore. You know, it was quite a sad time to be honest because all the play, a lot of the players that we I used to have fun with, you know, we used to go toe, we used to go toe to toe, and you know, we used to have close games. It wasn't fun because they want a challenge, and so it wasn't fun for me. And they were just losing, so it was getting annoying for them, and, and so it wasn't fun for them, and so. I just kind of, I, I, I was a bit isolated in the UKFGC at a certain point because I couldn't really grow in that sense. Um, and I had to find creative ways to grow myself by playing people and practicing new things or trying new characters and so on. Dude, that's, so, why, uh, we, that's why we say that we, we can't <clears throat> even begin to wrap our minds around the legacy and the hardships and the, and the relentlessness that you had to have and the genius that mm. you had to have to do what you did, man. And like, Mm. I, I understand a hundred percent. Like you were literally the black sheep, like literally, yeah. and, and you were the best. And you were the best, though. Like you were, yeah. you were the odd one out, and you were the best. Like you obviously have felt that and have been that in a lot of situations, and people just were not ready for the yeah. truth. I think, I think a big, thing, yeah, I think a big thing is like you know the industry is relatively new. You are the first. You know, you are like 
you know, the Jordan of the fighting game community, for lack of a better word. And, and so I think mm. that not only was there that jealousy, but then also there just wasn't infrastructure to really, you know, exhaust that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. To protect you. And I mean, like, just wasn't an industry like, you know, Michael Jordan had a whole NBA that could, you yeah. know, give him the shoes and the movies and all that stuff to give him where he needs to be. And, and he'll sure. never be a rich in history. So, you know, we're doing it, you know, on, on the street level, we're doing the, you know, the, the grassroots stuff. And so me and Kai definitely will work to uh, protect your legacy for sure. And tell more people about who it is that you do. And I, I hope after this, if you have time, you can link us to some of your videos uh, or mm. any footage that you haven't released, because I know yeah. we will definitely a hundred percent work to release that stuff because it's, it's a duty. Wow, that's crazy. Thank you, guys, you. That's so kind. No, like for real, like it's not like it's it's an obligation because you for real paved that way for us to come through and say, oh, this is possible. There's people that look kind of like us that can have their own perspective, their own approach. And it's not just that you're good. Like when I listen to you on different interviews and stuff like that and, you know, we've talked before, you know, you've mm. you've you've you are the real deal. Like you're not just good. Mm. Like you represent the the philosophy. You represent the, the right. world. You represent the hardship, the perspective that Basquiat sort of element that we need to mm. like protect dude. So it's not even a question on whether or not you will be continue to be talked about, you know, we're going to break down the door and make sure that, you know, the prodigal son is, is cemented in history. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah um, I was going to make one uh, last point there. So yeah, the other thing is, um, so, you know, I've seen like, I don't know, on YouTube or whatever, I can't remember where it was, was it YouTube? But yeah, um, there was a comment like, oh, um, that was before it was something about yeah that that's irrelevant now because that was before and it just made me think like do you not know mike tyson you know like you if everything that happened before is irrelevant then like have you ever heard of michael jordan before you, you know have you, have you heard of big l do you know about legends that were around i don't like the concept i'm like i don't like the notion that anything that happened before your timeline your blip on the universe is irrelevant Right. I think that's such an right. ignorant mentality. So mm-hmm. anything that happens before or after is irrelevant because just because you weren't here. What? Right. Yeah. This is this is how some people think though. People that's sometimes people think some people people go on like their timeline is the only timeline that matters. We're learning from things that happened before we were on the planet. That's how mm-hmm. we know stuff. We learn from history. We need see th- th- that kind of stuff triggers me. You know, for lack of a better term, one of those very modern words it triggers me. But yeah, it's it's like. We, we are so grateful that we've had people before us to kind of teach us the yeas and nays of the world, of lifestyle, you know? How do we know what's good on the game, what tactics? You see what I'm saying? And, and wow. these kids, sometimes they just don't know. I mean, when I was learning, when I was learning to throw fireballs, they were learning to throw tantrums. That, that's, the real, that's the realest of it. Do you know exactly. what I'm saying? Exactly, exactly. When they were learning to jump, I was doing empty jump look, you know? Mm-hmm. And they, I mean, yeah, when, when they were learning to run, I was doing run grab. Right, you know? right, and and this, this is just what it is. It's just a shame that a lot of the kids today, because these are the future. These people are the future, right? These people yeah. that talk about stuff like that, you know, this is what we've got coming in the future. So it's quite a shame yeah. when they don't appreciate the history. And um, yeah, I mean, I I get it now. You know, things move forward. We have uh, games coming out now that went out back in the day. We have new ways of learning, and there's always this big discussion about old versus new what would happen if 
a certain player today was around back in the day, would he or she have won or whatever, and, 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 and vice versa. And to be fair, games now, a lot of the games are much easier than they used to be. They are. They are. Execution-wise, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, and that's also something that, you know, people don't really touch upon in, 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 this, in that way. But, I, I, I mean, I, I get it. People, I think it's insecurity as well. People want to protect their thing that they have now. They don't want to accept that something could come in between that, you know, like that, that anything they have now could be deemed as uh, uh, in, insignificant in any way at all, you know? So. Uh, one, one last, last question. Sure, one sure, last sure. thing that's quick, just really quick. Um, what is for you the most like solid fighting game? The one that you think is like the standard, it's the cream of the, it's the one that people, if you could learn any fighting game, you know, that, that, that everybody knew and that we're building this discourse around and we're learning and building community on. What is that game that could really advance of any of any fighting game of any time period? Okay, okay. Um, I realized I didn't answer the question before. So the most important tournament win was probably when I won Evo the first time. Um, the most important win period might have been when I beat the Korean guy because that redefined history that a non-Asian could be, could be someone that beats an Asian player. That, that never happened before. So uh, that is definitely one of my most solid wins. I'm really happy about because I worked really hard for that. And also I was going against the grain. I was going against the crowd. They were saying, no way, man, you're going to waste your money flying. Man. You're going to get slaughtered. What are you doing? You know, I proved them all wrong. Um, I had a lot of money matches where people had said on the forums, when you come here, I want a piece of you. This Ryan Hart guy, I'm going to beat you. I want to play first to 10, first to five. And I had about 10 money matches landed with all these US players. When I beat the Korean guy, they all canceled. Every single player that had money on the line to play me, they canceled. I didn't get a single money match after that beat the Korean guy. That's wild. Um, not, not, not a single one. Not a single player stood up to their what they were going to do. No, no, no. I'm going to beat you first and turn. No, no, no one, no one did it. No one played me. Um, and then yeah, so um, uh, winning DreamHack was really big because I was coming from the losers bracket, and DreamHack's a really big tournament. And at the time, you know, um, yeah, I was beaten down so badly in the winner's bracket. I played Zian from Singapore back in his early days, and he destroyed me in the winner's bracket. And I came back and beat him two sets in the grand final. And that was a really, uh, a really good win. I was really proud of that. Um, so, yeah, winning back. And then, yeah, to answer your other question, the most solid playing game. Um, so, if you look at Pakistan, Tekken um, is quite good because the training mode allows you to really work on a lot of really cool specifics in how you can create strategy and stuff. Um, but for me, Virtual Fighter is the best because Virtual Fighter 4, at least, created the best platform for developing your mind. A lot of games teach you how to use your mind, but this is better. This is deeper. It takes you deeper in. You know, mm. it's like if someone's going to give you a house tour. Street Fighter shows you one room, Tekken shows you three rooms. And Virtual Fighter shows you the whole house, balcony, garden, basement, everything. And that, that's the metaphor for the house being your mind. It teaches mm. you more about you than you've realized you have in you, that you, the resolve you have, the determination you have, the ability to adapt that you have that's, un, that's not been harnessed yet. Like all these things, um, VF kind of breaks it down for you, you know, and, and oh, I can do, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I could think of that. That's, and I'm doing this on the fly. This is, I've never experienced this before, you know. Every time you try and talk to someone that doesn't play VF, what will they tell you? VF is a hard game. Because when you're outside the house, 
you don't understand anything about what's going on inside. Once you get in the house, you realize it's the most amazing house you've ever been in. You don't want to leave it. Um, I only left the because our community was forced to drop the game because they didn't release the console version. We lived and breathed through console. We didn't have arcades like Japan do. So when they had a console version of VF4 Evo, we were all into it. We had such a big scene. We were growing. I was teaching as well, traveling. We were creating tournaments, being part of them, make, making leagues, all that stuff. But when um, VF4 died, uh, VF4 Final Tunes came out after VF4 Evo. But VF4 Final Tune was the first game on arcade release where Sega started leasing games. You couldn't buy games anymore. As an arcade owner, you couldn't buy, you couldn't go to Sega and say, I'm going to buy you. They would lease you the cabinet so that they keep making money. And they only leased nationwide. So no one outside of Japan had VF Final Tune. So our local arcade in London couldn't get it. And all the arcades we went to to ask, they couldn't get it. They could not buy the game. They, Japan literally, cancelled an entire world of VF careers at that point. There was no longer a chance for anyone to be a professional VF player. Can you imagine that? Only Japan, only Japan had access to a professional community for that game. Just imagine if Street Fighter V was not on console, just for a second, like we're in 2021, but imagine Street Fighter V has never, ever ever been released on console. So way back from 2016. It'd be dark times. Yeah, no arcades because they, no, but but you have arcades, but you don't have the game on arcade because Japan, Capcom Japan, only lease the arcade to local vendors, only nationwide. So you have to go to Japan just to play the game and you have to play on arcade. And COVID-19, it's really a wrap. Yeah. So, th- but this is what we face. I mean, even if you take COVID-19 right. away, your career is effectively over. You have no, yeah. you literally have no access to the game. And uh, so if anyone listening to this didn't know that, that's why the rest of the world got left behind on Virtual Fighter, which is why every single time there's a BF tournament, Japan win it for free. This is why. Japan were already the best by a long margin anyway, you know, but now it's just like extra free. <laughs> it's just like extra, extra free. So uh, yeah, that, that's, uh, that's the... That's the short and skinny there. 